This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. It takes strength to resist the dark side. Only the weak embrace it, and those who oppose it are more powerful than you will ever be. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one animated TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and, and as always, I'm here with my co-pilot, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, I've finished my summer one classes, and uh, last minute I realized that I, I thought that I was going to have this week-long break between summer one and two, and I was just going to really be as lazy as I could, but then I found out uh, there is no such thing as this week-long break, and I'm back into <laughs> back into school oh, again. Man. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, once again, we are happy to have a, a very special guest on. It's uh, Josh Crabb from Home One Radio Podcast. Welcome back to Franchise Fatigue, Josh. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited. This is uh, going to be lots of fun. I don't get to talk about the Clone Wars enough, usually just to myself <laughs> uh, or to Blaine. Um, but usually we just haven't had enough time to cover any of this stuff because there's so much Star Wars content out there. So I'm really excited that you guys are doing this. Is there ever a plan to go through it on your show? We've done some, we did like a primer for people because we had a lot of people that we know that were like, how do I even get started watching the Clone Wars? So we did like a primer episode a while back where we kind of talked about some of the major arcs to go watch. Um, and uh, there there are some season five ones that we tossed in there because we felt that they were extremely important, not only to understanding uh, where canon's at right now, but it was at the time um, Rebels was wrapping up. And so we, we were talking about some of those arcs that tied directly into the last season of Star Wars Rebels. Mm. Um, and so for, I guess, anyone who wasn't around for the, our Empire Strikes Back episode, you want to uh, introduce yourself in your show? Yes, so my name is Josh. Uh, I host Home One Radio with my co-host, Blaine. Um, we are part of the Real World Theology Network. Uh, that's how Blaine and I met, and we both found out that we love Star Wars and that we're basically clones of one another. So I get to be fives in the clones, so um, he can be stuck being tough or something like that. But anyways, yes, we um, every single week we focus a little bit more on like the story and narrative of star Wars. And typically we're reviewing stuff. A lot of time we do books cause Blaine and I are huge book guys. Uh, we do comic books. We've done the TV shows. We, um, did rebels for a couple seasons since we started as a show and we'll be doing reviews and talking about resistance once it starts. And obviously we have the movie stuff as well. So yeah, uh, we like our show and we like that people listen to it and it's really fun to talk Star Wars every week with one of my best buds. And we like it too. Yeah. I just, I've been getting into reading some of the uh, books. So I've been going back to your yes. backlog and listening to the book reviews. Always good. We really like the books. Uh, we're very much looking forward to Thrawn Alliances, which is coming out soon. Um, so if you haven't read that book, I would definitely suggest reading the first Thrawn book, like the new Thrawn book, uh, mm -hmm. by Timothy Zahn, like in, immediately yeah, i have the second one pre-ordered okay great awesome yeah I, um so as you've probably seen uh we are discussing the fifth season of the cgi animated clone wars series yes and this one has even more hondo than probably ever before so that's awesome yeah, my friends <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I have to apologize in advance for all the very terrible hondo impersonations <laughs> that are going to be coming in this episode 
Uh, and I'm not really sorry. Don't he's, be. He's just too fun to quote. Yeah, he's so great. And uh, given our tendency to just jabber on for way too long, we won't be able to have Josh on for the entire season. Yeah, uh, you'll be you'll be here for three arcs. You'll be for the the Andoran, the Darth Maul, and the final wrong Jedi arc. Yes. Um. So he'll disappear for a certain period of time in the in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but before we get to the main discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. One interesting thing I noticed is that there are no standalone episodes this season, which is really, really, really interesting how they've really moved on to, toward uh, these longer extended arcs. Yeah, they really moved away from that. And I think that was the whole plan. I mean, this is kind of like the last really full season of the show that we get or that you can see. I mean, episode six is or season six is a little bit abridged. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was kind of the plan moving away from it is having these different arcs uh, sort of inform the story. I think it, it's probably good because they were well-established characters by this point, And it was time to start doing that as you got closer to like Revenge of the Sith and things like that. Yeah, it's mostly good. I do miss having like little episodes like Trespasser, you know, the uh, Ma- Magnificent oh, sure. Seven or whatnot. Those are fun. All right, uh, let's just dive right into the first arc, which is the Andoran arc. Uh, first episode is A War on Two Fronts. This is directed by Dave Filoni, and this entire arc is written by Chris Collins. In this one, Anakin, Ahsoka, Obi-Wan, and Rex travel to Andoran to help train insurgents to combat the current Separatist occupation of the planet. And the uh, rebels are are commanded by Stila and Saw Guerrera, and they are joined by Ahsoka's old friend Lux Bonteri. Um, just to start off with, I, I I wonder how how intentional this like how intentionally political this episode was because the whole thing is about train like the the moral and political complications of training insurgents, and it's so <laughs> it's crazy because they're fighting over a city called ISIS. <laughs> and yeah. you're talking about how a government sometimes will train insurgents and then who who knows in, in a couple of years you might you might have to fight the people you, very people you trained and it just I, I have no intention of getting too terribly political but it just felt so weird because this this episode was obviously happened before it was written and and released before the whole isis crisis but just <laughs> it was so surreal watching that yeah it's 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 oddly prophetic and terrifyingly so um as luke lucas ages he must get more and more um you know uh force sensitive i guess as maybe you want to put it that way <laughs> i guess some uh. would say the rise of palpatine is prophetic of trump or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah there's just a lot of very interesting conversations they're talking they're going in the jedi council talk about the difference between terrorism and insurgency and how they have to go in there but they, they they can't fight the war, but they can tr- train them. It was this whole interesting thing because the 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 rightful king was deposed, and so technically it's a perfectly legal king in in charge. But there's also mm-hmm. a separatist occupation, so they're trying to find a loophole to send troops in or send up uh, you know Anakin and the, the uh, others to go in and train the insurgents. I think it's just a, this, this this series is constantly bringing up these really fascinating. Uh, you know, moral and political questions. I think this is one of them. Yeah. You know, it really kind of, and I think it's interesting because it really does, it sets the tone for what this kind of season is going to be all about is, is really maybe questioning some of the motives of the, what we've always, always assumed are the good guys from the prequel trilogy. 
Uh, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, you know, not maybe as scandalous as some of the later episodes, <laughs> but um, not at all. But uh, you, you definitely get this, like, they're they're taking some liberties in sending in some Jedi. And, and clearly, you know, in, in this episode, it becomes it becomes quickly obvious that the Jedi are not going to be able to avoid getting entangled in this whole conflict. Um, you know, especially with someone as headstrong as Ahsoka, who's going to end up just kind of getting stuck in the middle. And she's kind of the one that ends up getting stuck in the middle more than Anakin and Obi-Wan. Yeah, because they peace um, out halfway through. Right, exactly. And so Ahsoka is the only one who stays behind. Um, and yeah, they get... It, it's really it's really fascinating to kind of get this look into how the Jedi and specifically the Republic as well are managing to entangle, entangle themselves uh, further into this conflict. And you're not really too concerned maybe about like the Republic getting involved because that's kind of what you do in war. But the fact that they send Jedi into it is even um, maybe a little bit more questionable um, in just kind of entrenching the Jedi and the Jedi council into these sort of, um, I don't know what you want to call them, like uh, secretive missions. Yeah, although you think about it, probably pre-war, this would have been more the Jedi's cup of tea rather than you know c- commanding armies. Because this is sure they, they would have been able before they became so entangled with the Republic, they would have been able to go in to more you know uh, sensitive areas without having to work through the Republic and the Republic army. Well, right. Think about how Phantom Menace opens. You know, yeah, Obi Wan and and. Uh, Qui-Gon are on a, a diplomatic mission, quote unquote, which is, you know, I mean, easily able to turn once it turns on them, they're able to fight their way out. It it, fe- it felt more like, you know, the opening of like a, a spy movie or something like that with them infiltrating this Trade Federation starship. Yeah, it, it actually brings me back to think about the episode Trespass with the uh, the Pantorans mm-hmm. where yep. they couldn't intervene because they were there as representative, representatives of the Republic. I wonder if before sure. the war... They, you know, just as Jedi, the peacekeepers of the galaxy, they could have, they would have been able to intervene if, if that, that, that uh, non-intervention policy was something that came about when they joined with the Republic. Hmm. That's interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't know for sure, but um, it, yeah, it, it, it brings up some very interesting real-world political parallels, <laughs> especially since they do end up, or at least the same government does indeed end up fighting. The rebels. Yep. Uh, one question mm-hmm. you, you might know this was Saul Guerrero create, created explicitly for this show. Like, did he have any kind of existence in the Star Wars uh, Legends before uh, he was? No, no, he was he was specifically created for the Clone Wars. Okay. Um, I don't know if they had any more plans for him to be fleshed out beyond how he was fleshed out. Um, I think I remember, you know, because obviously he's uh, an important character in Rogue One. Um, and then some supplemental material like Rebel Rising, uh, the book, and some other stuff as well, uh, and showing up in Rebels, um, and became an important sort of counter character to to what we always known of the Rebellion. But all of that really came about is I think I remember in the development phase, Dave Filoni and Henry Gilroy and some of these other people at Lucasfilm saying that they kind of just were like, they were pitching a character for Rogue One, and... I think someone in the story group piped up and was like, well, Saul Guerrero kind of fits a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they started to just get the wheels going with that. And it just happened that, you know, everything seemed to line up and they were able to introduce that character into a movie. That, that's just brilliant because looking at this and then Rogue One, it really feels like the character was written with this one arc in mind just because of how mm-hmm. disillusioned and cynical he is at the end of this arc. And, and then oh, yeah. the whole question of, you know, training insurgents and they might because they might fight you and then to be able to go back and retcon all of that into this one long character arc for the character is just brilliant right and it really does if you read the book rebel rising it does a little bit of that um bridging uh which is it's very interesting just because you know it it clearly goes to show that guerrera kind of does sort of lose it a little bit when Stila dies spoiler alert for the end of this arc but um you know when he loses his sister i mean he basically um kind of loses a little bit of like his moral compass, which is something that you see throughout the arc is Steeler really is kind of a grounding point for him mm-hmm. um, because there, there are clearly little bits here and there of, of saw, you know, obviously he goes, he doesn't listen and, and gets captured. Um, but then also, um, you know, there's these little bits where it seems like he might take it too far. And his sister is this, um, this grounding, uh, leadership presence in his life and in the uh, the Onderon rebels' life as well, and um, to lose that Saw really did lose a major part of himself, and it's kind of one of the reasons why he ends up being a um, kind of a horrible person. James, you've been quiet. You anything you say about any of that? Uh, man, I'm just enjoying this discussion. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything that was said, and it is it is really cool to see like the movies being so willing to delve into these stories if it makes sense. And, you know, thinking about where Saw is when we see him in Rogue One, there was a little bit um, in this arc where I'm like, hmm, I, it feels like they're kind of having him grow out of this character. Because when we're introduced to him, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely the kind of guy that young Saw Gerrera is, very hot-headed, very, like, <laughs> I think whenever they're talking about strategy, Someone says, you know, like, we, we need to, you know, we need to ease up so they're not scared of us. And, like, his instant reply is, like, we need to attack more. He just, that's the mm-hmm. kind of person he is. And it feels like, you know, he is maturing. Uh, I was like, it, it, it almost feels like Rogue One reverted him. But then I think you do make a good point where losing Stila does kind of, it, it to me, it kind of contextually reverts him back to a bit of who he was before. Because, um, you know, when she's kind of, made leader he's very envious at first and then it slowly takes him a little bit to warm up to her being a leader to where you know he says like you know there was the right choice and then right after all of this like his reward for trusting her and and kind of doing the right things and being the good soldier she ends up dying and it's you know it's easy to imagine how that would kind of change someone's like well i tried doing it right and it just kind of makes someone jaded and cynical and make you who you were before. Um, and then just about what you were talking about before, about how um, how political it does feel, uh, even beyond just like, you know, current, the current political climate at, at the time it was airing. Um, not that it's really anything new to Clone Wars. Just We've talked about how how deeply political it's been willing to go before. But Dude, Star Wars is it not is, about politics. <laughs> oh yeah just remember it's uh, it's, uh, it's just I, fun I'm pretty sure it's a conversation we've already had <laughs> you know I, it is cool to see 
the way the Republic and the Jedi engage with stuff like this compared to where we saw before, like even in Attack of the Clones, um, when Mace says, you know, like we're peacekeepers, not soldiers. And that seemed like a very, you know, like a very firm stance. Like we'll do what we can, but we're going to try to not be involved. And we see a little bit of that here, you know, like where they're training them to protect themselves but they're trying to stay out of involvement as much as they can. But it feels like the motivations and the reasoning behind that is different. Like initially when Mace says that in Attack of the Clones, it feels based on principle. But now just as you know, the series really you know, beats into your head as it goes on, like people are tired of this war and all like, you know, after heroes on both sides and we really get to um, humanize the, the separatists and we just see how kind of Harry, this whole war has become where now it feels like they're doing this just because they're like tiptoeing around like everything, you know, they're looking at the implications of doing this, well this is neutral this is legal, this is a rightful occupation it just, you know, maybe it feels maybe a bit less just in terms of principle and now like we can't step on the wrong toes, we can't cross any lines, like this war is raging on with as many complications like as is, we don't need to complicate things any further um, mm-hmm. but yeah I just it, it's cool to see the series the, just the entire way that the Jedi and the Republic look at the war and, are, and interact with the war as it goes on yeah uh, what, one cool thing I noticed about the uh, the Rebels is how or the, the Andoran Rebels is how closely their design mirrors the especially the uh, the Endor um, uniforms that the Rebels use in the original trilogy mm-hmm no. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting design. Um kind of something that they bridge a little bit in um Rebels when Saws, you know, Rebels show up that they look a little bit more like that as well. Um they look less like the um the like fleet troopers that we see in A New Hope. Um, with the you know kind of like rounded white helmets or go- I, don't, I don't say borderline goofy looking helmets. <laughs> uh, one cool little character thing I noticed, and at first it really annoyed me, was the, the sort of quasi love triangle going on between uh, Stila, Lux, and Ahsoka. At first I was <laughs> sure. like, come on, we don't need this. But I, I like how it was handled, to where it just kind of it sort of comes in and just kind of fades out. It's just a mm-hmm. little thing that there that enriches Ahsoka's character because we we already know that her and Lux had sparks before. Um, right. But also I liked how Anakin, like there was a shot where Ahsoka's kind of eyeing Lux and Anakin's just kind of smirking in the background. And he actually, he proves to be a lot, a lot better of a master than Obi-Wan when it comes to guiding her through this kind of relate this, this uh, temptation. Um, you know, when he comes to her and kind of just talks to her when he, because he, he obviously noticed it because he's probably, because he's doing the same thing himself, but even though he's to- he's a total hypocrite, but he's still able to come in and you know very gently guide her through that. Whereas Obi Wan, he I'm pretty sure he sees it, but he just ignores it. Yeah, you know I think that that's kind of this interesting moment where he kind of there's there's a sort of human connection where they both it, it's almost like unspoken that they're both aware of things that they might be doing that are considered not the Jedi way, um, so to speak. With uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan? Um, but yeah, yeah, or Anakin and Ahsoka, mm. you know, they sort of have a moment where, you know, he's sort of, I don't know, guiding her through all of this. Um, 
and you know it's just i i found that little that little moment interesting um and obviously later on you know uh, obi-wan doesn't handle it well which is weird because obi-wan kind of you know maybe he's just better at controlling his his feelings because you know he's obviously got a connection with somebody too Mm -hmm. um but he doesn't seem to to handle it that well in revenge of the sith and you know maybe this this helps us to understand that that was still a fresh wound for him personally um and he he had had his connection completely severed um you know with satine so yeah it's it's interesting that they put in all these things i i enjoy how they kind of add these because i think that we kind of think when we imagine a jedi we imagine kind of a straight shooter um, maybe somebody like Mace Windu or Yoda. I don't know. Which Mace very... Windu scares me. <laughs> well, yes, I'm saying Mace is probably less scary than Yoda. Yoda, you know, he likes teaching the kids. He likes being fun and cute and stuff like that. Um, and obviously, he's just a kook when we meet him <laughs> in Empire Strikes Back. Um, but you know, we kind of get this picture of the Jedi being very self-serious, um, very dedicated to the ways of how things are and i really enjoy how in this season especially we get some more colored um views of what it means to be a jedi when you have passion when you have feelings when you have um connections to other people that really matter to you Um, and we see that from someone like obi-wan kenobi who very much uh seems to be quite a serious person um i even like the added touch that it kind of seems throughout the prequels and in the clone wars, we get this idea that Obi-Wan seems to like to, uh, imbibe every now and then (laughs) or a lot. And, (laughs) um, so he, he seems to have this, this thing where it's like, you know, within the Jedi he's very sober and sober minded, but he does enjoy to have a drink every now and then. Um, something that would seem to make sense with him being familiar with the Moss Eisley cantina. Yeah, that and the, the kind of flirting he does with us uh, with Aventress. He seems to kind of when he's when yeah. he's outside, he he goes a little wild. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, it's almost like he recognizes like I would be a lady killer if I wasn't a Jedi, <laughs> and <laughs> so you know he's there's a little bit of like the reality that Obi Wan maybe is a little bit full of himself at times he when he, he was a little when like he was you younger. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it it almost makes you wonder. If, if this is just something that like all of these ma- like all these people who are masters at this point who we've met in the show have kind of gone through their own version of that like where they you know everybody was young and they all kind of had that moment where you're really struggling through the commitment to being a Jedi um, and having to work through all of these passions and it seems like you know maybe maybe he does. But it doesn't seem like, you know, Mace Windu, that something like that would ever be anything that, you know, that he would struggle with. Like you said, he just seems like such a straight shooter. And so do these other, you know, masters. Uh, But maybe they did. And it could just be that that could be part of maybe their arrogance. You know, like, well, I, I went through that and I'm fine. This is just the way of the Jedi. Because, you know, we've seen... Evidently, you know, Obi-Wan has his attachment, Anakin, obviously, and Ahsoka is clearly, like, kind of flirting the line between <laughs> flirting with Lux. And mm-hmm. so, it ne- in, in none of those, it seems like it's almost up to the Master's discretion at how to handle that. There doesn't really seem to be any, like, Jedi-condoned official way to, like, it, it, it seems it's very dogmatic, like, hey, this is the rules. Attachments are forbidden. 
moving on to the next lesson. Um, just like it's something that's assumed, they'll they'll be fine. And because they don't address that, you get problems like Anakin. And so moving on, they, uh, they 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 move the fight into the city, and they're doing this kind of guerrilla warfare, basically in the streets. And I like how they they bring up to where a revolution it can only be successful if it wins the people. And you have kind of both sides trying to vie for the heart of the people and where King Rash is trying to make the people afraid of them. And they're, you know, putting out these messages, trying to rally the people. And there's a really cool conversation between uh, General Tandon, who's just a really, really likable character in here. And um, and Saul, after he's captured, where they're kind of just going over who 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 will who's likely to win this this fight and uh and we eventually see that you know Rash's mistake is that he tried he tried to install himself as a ruler in a nation that just didn't want him mm-hmm. so yeah as soon as as soon as the um the tide turns oh gosh <laughs> they just the tactical joy just executes him as they leave it's like he was, uh, he was yep. pretty useless yeah I was just gonna say that that's one of the reasons that I, I really did enjoy this arc a lot is because of how much emphasis it put on like the people that are being ruled, you know. Um I feel like maybe with uh the Mandalore arc in the previous season, um what was it, season four or three? I I'm not I don't remember. Um Mandalore whichever was, one had a bunch like, of Mandalore arcs. Corruption. That's us three. Now. The corruption arc. Okay. Um you know, everything felt so focused on, like, the rulers. What One of my hesitations for really enjoying that arc so much is it just felt like it was... The audience was forced to assume that, like, whoever rules, like, the uh, the people will be cool with it. But here, it's, it's all about, you know, even in terms of the good guys, they're having to discuss their tactics. Like, we're having to find that balance between fighting for our side, but still realizing that what our fighting looks like is running through the streets with guns, you know, there's explosions. There's, it's all, you know, they're having to figure out ways to do this that still make themselves look like the good guys. And then you have, you know, the deposed King talking to the, to the current King rash and you're pretty much making statements like a a ruler who does not have the, uh, the backing of the people is completely unsustainable. Um, And so that was just like, it was really, to me, really politically nuanced in a show that already, you know, I feel like handles politics really well and and certainly more mature than a typical cartoon. Yeah. And, you know, this, again, kind of going back to Saw Gerrera, um, because I find this to be the reason that I like the Andoran arc so much is because of how Saw Gerrera's character is picked up again. I liked it a lot before, but I liked it even more once, you know his whole kind of reintroduction into um, the, you know, rebel buildup and everything like that. But you look at that, um, what you were talking about regarding the guerrilla warfare and being conscious of the citizens within it. Um, this is kind of something that saw Guerrera. It, it, it's important for him that he has those influences around him um, and that they die or fail him in a way at the end of this because he doesn't do this anymore later on when he has like saw's partisans because his partisans uh his rebels essentially do the exact opposite of this where it's like civilian casualties are not really that big of a deal to them and they actually do uh if for example in the rebel rising book there's um uh an atrocity that they basically commit where they just execute imperial citizens Mm. 
um, something that Mon Mothma and the other rebels had expressly um, not been doing. And it, it, it actually, uh, you know, this kind of goes through the story of how Jyn Erso came to be a part of Saw's partisans and everything like that. And she's horrified by all of this. Um, and really that starts the breaking point between the two of them, um, you know, before we meet them up again in Rogue One. And, um, you know, so this this is kind of standing in contrast to what Saw will become um, when he just could care less who's getting in the way of his struggle uh, whereas at this point, uh, people like Stila and Lux and Ahsoka are sort of these grounding, again, forces that keep him from sort of flying off the rails as sort of like the militarized uh, zealot type. So I, I like how this episode plays up that whole, um, this whole idea um, and really is sort of just a, the whole arc is sort of this build up to uh, the citizens joining the side of these rebels because of the things they don't do that the droid army and uh, the current corrupt king does. You, you can see the similarities between the situations as well. Like it's really the same kind of um, opposition uh, between this episode and, and Rogue One. And here, you know, it's one, they're only fighting droids. Two, it, there's they're very like pinpoint um, tactics. Uh, and even when, you know, like there's moments where they go after the tanks and it, it feels like they're even waiting for it to be, you know, in isolated locations and, and things like that. And it feels very intentional the way they go about it. And then afterwards, you know, there is way like they're shouting for Onderon and they're like following almost every attack. It feels like these are being made to be seen and like they're they're so aware of the potential for them to be seen as a threat that they're stopping to promote morale in the in the citizens and then you look at rogue one uh, the the street battle that Jin gets caught in you know they're throwing grenades around and there's like this kid mm-hmm. that Jin has to go out and save and it just seems like all of this that he learned here mm-hmm. is just completely gone out the window and it's like the most pragmatic kind of view ever yeah one really cool uh scene that stood out to me uh, i think it was the third episode when um when they're about to execute the king with that really awesome laser guillotine thing. <laughs> yeah, but, that uh, thing is cool. Just the, the way that scene is put together with, with they have the rescue attack and the droids co- kind of come in out of the crowd. And uh, uh, Ahsoka's right about to reveal herself. And then uh, Tandon comes in like a boss and is able to get them all out of there. It's just, I think, a really well done action sequence. Yeah, kind of this moment where it's like you thought that it would... It, in the amazing thing is, is that it really would have been like a political debacle if she had revealed herself, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it would have been clearly showing that the Jedi were backing these rebels and it would have been an easy selling point for obviously Dooku or whoever to be like, hey, listen, you know, the rebels are back or are being backed by the Jedi and by the Republic and you know, this is clearly a bigger conflict than we need it than it, or it can be a much bigger conflict than it could have meant, um, you know, the complete, uh, obliteration of Onderon or just the upscaling of war in that, um, planet. So yeah, it becomes this really tense moment where it's like, is this going to go the way that we don't want it to go? Mm-hmm. And, uh, for the, for the final episode, uh, tipping points, this kind of just goes into all out war. And I think the the battle sequence, it's a really long extended sequence of kind of over this road and through the air. It's really well done. It's directed by Bosco NG, but 
I really like just the way they visualize that battle, especially the fighting on the road. And then I, I'm guessing they're probably aping Avatar a little bit, but the, the, the kind of flying dragons they have that are kind of fighting with the uh, those really cool saucer droids. Yes. Yeah, those things. Oh, man, what are those things from? Uh, I can't remember. I know that they there's like a, a special tie-in for those somewhere that I can't remember. Man, I know I used to play uh, play as those things in the old classic Battlefront 2 quite a bit. Oh, really? They're... That's what I think it's from. Yep, I think it's I think it's from Battlefront. Then uh, so the uh, the droids are pretty much uh, destroying the um, the rebels. So Anakin goes to, of course, our favorite Hondo <laughs> to get him to deliver some rocket launchers. Because again, they uh, technically can't. Intercede. I love how it's just like, yeah, we can't intercede, but we're just going to do it anyway. We'll just hire a, a pirate to do all our dirty work right. for us. <laughs> Is that all I am to you, Jedi? A delivery boy? Hondo's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Yeah, I'd, I just think it's it's this interesting moment again where it's like they can't necessarily get involved, so they have to involve like kind of sh- even more shadier elements and do shadier things than they were doing before. Um it it's kind of interesting how it it sets up this precedent that we're getting people making deals with more and more criminal like organizations as the season goes on. Hondo's not a criminal. Um, <laughs> how dare you? I am semi speechless. <laughs> yes, nice. Uh, of course, no one no one could do it like the legendary Jim Collins. Oh, but that's all right. Yeah, he's so wonderful. <laughs> so, you could be my new favorite spice. <laughs> yeah this this is actually one of my favorite episodes in the whole series just because how how i think how it resonates into later material um because of what i mentioned before about Dila's death um being sort of this tipping point for saw literally you know the name of the episode is it's a tipping point for him um obviously it's a tipping point for andron as well um and you know, it, it's just uh, this whole this whole thing. It even does for Lux as well. Um, I mean, it it becomes kind of a, a point for him where uh, you know he becomes the official senator of Onderon and he can you know basically become a part of the Republic. So you can imagine that Lux somehow gets tied up into the whole political dealings that are going on in Revenge of the Sith as well. Um, so it's just all these interesting character moments that come back up again. It was interesting seeing how at the end of this, he was finally able to come back to the Republic. Cause that was really his big thing. Um, yeah. And uh, there was a friend. A Seasons friend ago. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Where he was, mm-hmm. he was, he would turn against the, the uh, separatists, but he was still very adamantly against the Republic. And now this experience kind of brought him back in. Of course, mm-hmm. only a year later, <laughs> the whole Republic yeah. would go to hell. Yeah, and it, it really does kind of speak at how the entire galaxy gets sucked into this whole thing. Um, I mean, because, you know, you think of later on, we're going through the Mandalorians, who are you know, the Mandalorians. It, Mandalore itself is a planet that represents, you know, a thousand independent systems. But the, you know, the main planet in here gets dragged into the war. And that's something that we don't get to see because of season seven and eight and partially six did not get developed. But there was supposed to be more, you know, direct um, conflict between the Confederacy and the Republic on Mandalore in those seasons. Um, If you've read the Ahsoka novel, they kind of hints at that um, in some of 
Ahsoka's flashbacks that she has mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the Republic is fighting on Mandalore uh, with clone troopers on the planet. Oh, I wish we so, could have seen that so bad. Yeah, I know. It's it's a real shame because it would have been really great because it was obviously supposed to go straight up into uh, Revenge of the Sith when Anakin would leave to go rescue Emperor Palpatine, or not Emperor Palpatine, not yet, but close enough. Right, rescue his buddy Palps from uh, danger. But um, yeah, it it uh, it really does show how even like a, a smaller planet like Onderon gets kind of caught up in all of this, and how the entire galaxy is really just um, it's almost impossible for you not to take a side in this conflict because it's affecting the entire galaxy. Um, and that's something that Blaine and I have talked about on Home One Radio before. How this new newer material in the story group has really tried to uh, press home the point that the Clone Wars really did, um, even before the Empire, sort of ruin the galaxy um, at large, even before the Empire. And so that's why a lot of people like the Empire because they felt like it brought order and stability to a, a galaxy in chaos. And so for them, the Empire is a good thing, and that's why you can get people to be on the empire's side yeah that's just something that this show does so well like just from start to finish to me is uh really show why order 66 can happen and there's not an uprising uh, this guy comes out like between especially between phantom menace and attack of the clones it just seems like every time a new um, plan is suggested like ah now you know the bureaucracy that'll take like forever it just seems like they get so caught up so when a guy comes in and says like yeah I've got all this power I'm reforming it into an empire the Jedi are done this war has ended like you really can see why the average citizen is like alright you know I can get behind this I I also just really really enjoy the ending of this uh, this episode and the way it ends the entire arc um <laughs> the visually it kind of like reminds me of like the ending of Return of the King with everyone on top of a uh, in, in Gondor on top of the White City and you see this huge crowd of people all gather, gathered around what I really liked a lot about it is uh, and at first I, I wasn't a, a big fan initially whenever Lux says you know, like okay I've, I've pretty much decided I'm going to join the Republic I've been made Senator because one of the things that I loved about A Friend in Need was, you know, I, I would have been upset if Dooku tried, or Dooku has his mom killed, and he's like, okay, well, I clearly can't be with the Separatists, therefore I'm going to switch my entire ideology and be, like, join the Republic. I like that he was like, like, yeah, I'm obviously not with the Separatists, but my reasons for being opposed to the Republic remain. Um, so, mm-hmm. with him here, like, him saying, okay, now I am ready to to join the Republic, it almost seemed... Like in that scene, there was a little doubt in Ahsoka about, you know, the war and what was going on, you know, with her line, like, at what cost, you know, you said it yourself and she was, you know, quoting some of his problems with it before. It was just kind of ironic to me that the moment he's he's finally ready because he sees the good side of the Republic. He's like, you know, look at what they did. They sent Ahsoka. They even, you know, you know, made backroom deals to get us these weapons. Like, this is the side to join. And so right as he's coming to that point, Ahsoka, who's just seen far more of the Republic at this point, is like, yeah, but at the same time, how long is this dragging on? It just seems like she sees a lot more shades in it. And as he's joining in, the doubts that she's already she already may have had in the Republic are really, really starting to grow here. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously that starts the arc that we get from her later on. Where she gets all which, her doubts allied. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And we've lost Josh. And so the next episode is The Gathering. This one's directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and this arc is by Christian Taylor. In this one, we have Yoda and Ahsoka take a group of younglings to Ilum to find their own kyber crystals, which is what they use to power their lightsabers. We saw this planet uh, back in the, uh, the 2D Clone Wars series with uh, Barriss and Luminara um, when they fought all the invisible droids. So it was, it was cool to see them come back for, uh, come back to this planet and, and kind of confirm this bit of lore. Yeah, uh, I I think this location is actually like pretty cool. Um, all of these caves, whose like entrances and exits or and exits are like freezing and opening throughout like the day. I mean, you have that line when they first get there. They're like, "This doesn't seem very welcoming or hospitable or something like that." And like that, that's kind of the point. Just this very harsh environment that uh, that contains all of these like Jedi specific uh, items. Yeah, and so we have this uh, crowd of younglings who's made up of a uh, a human who's kind of a cocky jerk. Then there's what is, what is Kit Fisto's race? Um, I'm not you know sure. It's called. So a young uh, Nautilin. Yeah, it's fairly obvious. So is a, a young Nautilin. Um, then there's a, an Athorian with the those weird guys with those huge heads and four throats or whatever. Uh, then there's a Rodian. Who's, like the uh, Ithorian's kind of a coward. The, the uh, Nautilin's like a tech wizard. The Rodian's kind of a skeptic. And the Wookiee... I don't know what the Wookiee is. <laughs> and finally, there's a uh, Thalothian, who's same uh, species as uh, Adigalia, who's kind of... I don't know. What, what's her trait? She's kind of the main character, but so maybe she doesn't get the kind of trite character trait right off. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I'm not sure. You know, because they kind of further... It feels like they're elaborating on it a little bit more in the next episode where she she can't really get her lightsaber working. Hers is the last to work. And I almost wonder if it's just like this idea, like it's almost she's putting on a front like that she has it all together, but she doesn't really. I guess I guess to start with, that's kind of one of my issues with this episode. I, I enjoy this episode overall, but I feel like there's probably two or three too many kids to where like a lot of them are simply reduced to oh one's a coward one's a jerk one's a skeptic one's the, one's the tech guy by my calculations kind of thing but so we don't get time we don't really get time to you know get to know these characters you know fairly well aside from that one girl they're all pretty very vague sketches and i kind of I kind of wish they had maybe like just like three kids so we could have had, since we have a four episode arc, we could have spent some time and got to know them a lot better. Yeah, and honestly, I, I think that even with as many as there are, with there being four arcs, there was a way that they probably could have, like, painted with less broad strokes, um, like their their characters, because you know, four full episodes, as we've seen with how much you can do with like just one episode. I think four really could have done a little bit more with them without even having to reduce the number. Uh, but even still, like you, I I actually really enjoy this arc especially this episode which is my favorite of them yeah so with this episode they're going to this ancient jedi temple i like just right from the bat where they they all have to work together to open the gate of the temple and i like how the jedi training is so it's really like tailored you know to, to fit each jedi each each youngling like there's there's very little hand holding they, they, they kind of just it's like they just throw the kids into the deep end and make them swim uh you know, right from the start, they don't, they don't hold their hands. They have they they have to go and find these answers themselves, and and um, 
when they, they send them they send them into go f- into the cave to find the crystals and there's this wall of ice that's refreezing and they're like well if you don't come back in time you'll be there till next winter see ya <laughs> and yes yeah, so the, the, all the kids just wander around in the caves trying to find their uh, their uh crystals and of course you know the uh the tech kids who's trying to rely on his um his his uh machinery he he can't do it so he when he breaks his little device that reveals his crystal or uh the authorian who's a coward his crystal looks like it's inside of a monster's mouth and when he finally grabs it it just it, it just turns back into a rock just kind of, it's basically like that you know the the rodian girl she's like a skeptic and then when she finds like a million crystals and she has to close her eyes and trust the force and pull her one crystal to her um so yeah it's that that kind of thing yeah and i think you know as as very obvious and on the nose as they are i think most of them actually work pretty well um I think the one that I actually do like the most is is like the cocky human kid who, mm-hmm. you know, the, he is rewarded with this crystal by going back to help someone else. Like it's a selfless act that gives it to him. And again, you know, like it's it's very obvious like that this crystal is for this kid because he did this and this is his trait. Like I don't, even, even with that, it's still just, it feels like, you know, it's, for once, with as many problems as we have in the Jedi, like you kind of seeing them learn like legit lessons. Um, and I like Gunji's partially just because Gunji's adorable, um, <laughs> but like him just wanting, like almost like a dog just wanting to run out there and then being forced to just kind of sit and do the do the Qui Gon sit and wait until the opportune moment. And I, I like that only like the, the the connection between the Jedi and the Force and the Kyber crystals is so so like living that only each jet each jet i can only even see or sense their own crystal um so so it's it's almost like it's a, it's like a very elemental test like if they can't find a kyber crystal they're obviously not qualified to be a jedi because like this is like one of the most basic uh levels of connection to the force the ability to go and and you know find your own crystal simply through your own connection to the force. You know, there's no adult intervention. No one's helping you. It's just you and the force. Um, so yeah, even though obviously the, uh, the, the, the themes and uh, parables are really obvious, it still shows just how personal the force can be. Yeah. Yoda even says, I think in that one line where he's like, the Jedi are like the human representations of the living force. Um, and then you have her, I, I think it's the Rodian who is almost quoting or well, i guess since this came first who cheer it like as saying something very similar where she's like uh, i am one with the force um i think he you know he then says the force is with me but she says you know the force will guide me this one feels a lot more like it this episode feels like it treats the force you know much more religiously um not that it isn't typically like i mean the entire jedi order feels very much like this this religion but it almost feels like I, you can see parallels. A cult. <laughs> no, just just what it becomes. I I believe that you know it's being reformed to be what it was before, and, and Luke and Ray are gonna do it. Starting with burning the sacred texts. Oh, no. <laughs> Go on. Uh, <laughs> man, that would have that would be a retcon. Just a no. No, they're saved, and we we can go back. But anyways, specifically with this episode. If you, it seems like there are kind of parallels to just modern religion, like this reliance on the will of a higher power. Um, and we've had lines where it's like, "Be mindful of the will of the living force." But 
But here, it, it really does feel like, I mean, even though, we, of course, we find out the kids weren't in any real danger and that they could just bust out of that ice, um, it feels like they're able to send them on these different kind of missions, just being like, nothing will happen outside of the will of the Force. If the Force is with them, it, it will call them to them and everything will be okay. Like, it feels like this genuine, just like, faith and reliance on something else uh, that I thought was kind of cool to see here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just a great little piece of Jedi lore, and this this you know this ceremony and ritual that each and every Jedi has to go through, and is you know as I said is is that confirmation that yes you are a Jedi you found your crystal, kind of thing. Um, yeah, very simple, very cute, uh, but yeah, solid. Next episode is test a test of strength by Bosco Ng, and so while escorted the younglings back to Coruscant, Ahsoka and the rest come under attack from Hondo and his pirates. Uh, this one introduced us to a really awesome new character. The uh, what is the heck is the droid name? Uh, Hu Yang. Yeah, the very ancient droid Hu Yang, who is uh, kind of the Ollivander of the of the um, the Jedi. And if you don't know, it's a Harry Potter reference. And if you don't know, shame on you. So yeah, he's the one who helps them find their wands or <laughs> create their lightsabers. And I love his design because he he does he doesn't look like any droid we've seen before. And um. Like we say, he says he's like several hundred years old. And it's like, you know, you can see little bits and pieces of how droid technology has evolved. But he's still this very basic, almost a like Metropolis-like yeah, design or something. Yeah, eyes. And he's voiced to perfection by uh, the wonderful David Tennant. Oh, yes. He's just absolutely perfect. Yeah. And I, I really do like the addition of his character and the idea that they're, you know, because we think of all these droids as like coming and going and... It's cool to have this one who who has just seen it all for so long that he's got stories to tell about Yoda, you know, finding his first, uh, his kyber crystal. Uh, and like the kids, I'm like, I'm ready to hear that story. Yeah, it's just a really great addition to this, the whole Jedi lore thing. And then we see the construction of a lightsaber, which we saw, we saw in the, the 2D anime series as well. Where it's it's entirely even though it's a mechanical thing, it's entirely put together by the force. I guess essentially with the the force guiding each and every piece together. So that, that's why every lightsaber is completely unique because it's a, a reflection of that particular Jedi's connection with the force. I really really like that lightsaber building scene, uh, partially because it it re- really reminded me of the game Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic where you build yours and it is just kind of floating there and you're putting it together. But um, also just for mainly the reasons that you said where it shows why they're, they're all unique and distinct and it's not really like, ooh, you know, that looks cool. I'll, I'll stick that here. And I'll it is very much like, it looks like they're all looking at the same basic template, but that's all for like the, the circuitry, I guess that's, that's necessary for each blade. Um, but yeah, they're just, you know, pretty much forced to do what what Yoda had Luke do in Empire Strikes Back, and just completely clear their mind and focus on something, and not passively, but like allow the Force to work itself out for them and put these these technological pieces together. It's, it's cool visually. Like it's interesting that they're able to make putting these little pieces together still feel kind of mystical the way they did. Yeah, and so of course the uh, the human jerk boy creates his first, but. It's not, he didn't do it right. It turns into a bomb, but, which is used later on. And uh, Katucci's the uh, the the main girl, right? I think it's Katuni. Katuni. Yes, Katuni. 
Um, yeah, she her, she isn't able to. I guess it's kind of implied that her maybe her her issue is doubt. I don't know. Just like she's her connection to the forest is not as strong as the other ones. But then before she could finish, uh, were you gonna say something? I was I was just gonna say uh, one of the things that I liked about um, who I guess is just a dirt boy. Uh, <laughs> I do like though that they don't completely just dismiss the fact that I think he you know he grew into a a, a more selfless person the last episode. You know, as he as he's first he he fails in his first lightsaber instead of like throwing a hissy fit, he kind of just smiles and gives it a couple play swings and then cracks his knuckles and gets back at it like. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's nearly as frustrated with himself as he would have been prior. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's an acknowledgement of, of his growth before. Yeah, I just don't remember his name, so I'll call him Human Jerk Boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a good so, guy now. He can change. Mm-hmm. And so Hondo, of course, attacks and he wants to steal the crystals because, and we all know how much I like to be rich, don't we? <laughs> and so he is here to steal the crystals and... I th- guess they were afraid that he was becoming too friendly and likable because he's kind of scary again in this one. Um, he's not so subtly hinting that he might actually just be there to kill all the kids as well. Like it, it kind of goes back and forth where he seems to be, uh, he, he'll be like, you know, now hand over the crystals and no one gets hurt much. But then he's turning around where he's talking to his crew as if he plans to actually kill them all. Um, and it really brings back a sense of danger and unpredictability to his character that seemed to kind of have gone by the wayside where he just become cute. I like that they were, you know, bringing back, you know, he's a pirate, he's scum. Lest you get too attached to him. Oh, it d- d- doesn't hurt my attachment. You can do the scum. <laughs> and again, it's so weird. I mean, I don't know. They're going to have to do something pretty dark with this guy to, to get me to not like him anymore. Because even still, <laughs> even though he is admittedly darker this time around, I mean, I still, I still like him just as much. Yeah, and like even, um, even uh, uh, Ahsoka, you know, calls like, man, like what happened to you? You're so much more mean than you were last time. Yeah, so they, uh, they, what they do, they break the bond between the two ships, and all the pirates, are, all the pirates are sucked out into space. And there's this really cool shot where Ahsoka's basically flying through the corridors, kicking the pirates off the wall, as uh, you know, not trying to knock them back to their ship as the vacuum seal's breaking. Um, but ultimately, she is captured, and that goes to the next episode, which is Bound for Rescue, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And this one, the uh, the younglings, with obviously Ahsoka is captured now, so they're on their own, and they put together a plan to go and rescue her on Florum. Yeah, we we open with them trying to uh, trying to contact Kenobi, and he's going to send Cody, but they're attacked, so the kids are left on their own. And of course, you know, in typical Jedi fashion, they disobey orders and go to rescue her after, even though they're being told not to. And, and, and just the, that that little glimpse of the battle we see um, with uh, Kenobi and uh, Cody, where Grievous attacks them in space, is just it's only like five minutes, but it's a, one of the great space battles in the uh, series. Just the you just see how far technology has come. With and by, by, by the time we're here, these shots are, look so good. They they could have been from like Return, uh, Revenge of the Sith or something. Yeah. I- I feel like it's like Lucas behind so much of this, just considering how involved he was in this whole series. Uh, I can't imagine how much fun he was having with this with this entire thing, like just five seasons. Because, you know, I, I think in a way he almost reminds me of Peter Jackson, where it's just like it's a little kid in a, in a grown man's body. And he's just 
blocking and shooting he's bringing his like real like live action film expertise and slowly like refining them even further throughout these whole series to where yeah by by this point you know you switch animation well i guess it'd still be animation uh, but you you go to live action and everything here still holds up in terms of like uh angles and movement and all of it it's it's so good to look at yeah and then there's this really crazy battle when where grievous boards and he goes and like oh there's this shot where he knocks the clone down and then it kind of pans up to his face and we just hear a crunch as he stomps through his his breastplate um that just yeah it's just a really cool little battle sequence even though it's like a tiny little subplot in the show i love the effort they put into it yeah so apparently uh hondo wants uh ahsoka to i guess sell her to did he specify who he's gonna sell her to i don't think so it's also because he makes the specification that it's you know it, it there's other people who would be interested in in jedi and then he even goes on to qualify like in especially a female jedi so yeah, that was super creepy. Yeah, he, some weird implications there that uh, yeah, I may wish maybe weren't there. Yeah, um, and he just he basically he says like he's his his uh business has been kind of ruined because uh, Dooku holds such a grudge since our little <laughs> I held him hostage affair, and uh, yeah, his business is bad, so he's I guess into human trafficking now. Uh, so the kids, they land and they join the circus, which I kind of hate and wish wasn't in here, but whatever. <laughs> I kind of like this. I don't, I don't need George Circus, like Padawan Circus acts in my Star Wars. <laughs> now we know what Jedi can do outside of the war, you know? This is how they make their money. Uh, yeah, I guess that's how all the Jedi survived uh, Order 66. <laughs> they joined the exactly. circus. Um, so they go and they have the act. And if Hondo doesn't like your act, he kills you. And there are skulls to prove it. Yeah, so there's this the whole circus thing. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, drunk Hondo, which is probably the best Hondo. <laughs> I may not be as young as I once was, but I'm older. <laughs> he is he is the best, and honestly, that that makes the whole circus thing completely worth it to me. Was I love that this is like our peak into just what Hondo's up to now outside of outside of his business. It's just. He's just, you know, entertain like being entertained by these traveling circuses, because of course, exactly that's that's what Hondo does in his free time. Mm-hmm. So they fr- they free Ahsoka and all hell hell breaks loose and the circus is destroyed and they run away and uh, Hondo commiserates with a giant uh, something. You know, I know how you feel. You lost your master and I lost my Jedi. Jim Cummings is just the best. He really is. Um, so they escape, and then the next episode is a necessary bond. This one's directed by Danny Keller. And uh, Dooku orders Grievous to go basically destroy Hondo for the little I held him hostage affair back in season one. Well, that's a. It takes a long time to get his revenge. Although, you know, technically, we still have to keep in mind that everything within that, that we're seeing here is within only a, like a three year span less you know considering it picks up a bit after it ends and ends a bit before revenge of the sith starts yeah, so they come down and uh actually they're not even going to kill him at first they want to they basically you know, just want to come in and steal all his stuff and make him watch uh but honda doesn't like that and they fight back and actually wait wasn't there wasn't there like a crazy tank chase first at the opening, yeah, there's like a crazy tank chase at the opening of the episode where they're trying to escape, but they're the kids are recaptured, and then Grievous invades. 
So the kids team up with Hondo with a, with the pirates to go rescue Hondo. Uh, and there's more action, and Grievous has a really cool speeder. Yeah. And then there's another tank chase. There's a lot of running back and forth. Uh, they're running over here and over there. And different things are getting blown up in some order. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a. I remember it being a fun episode, but it, it doesn't stick much with me. So yeah, the four of the ki- five of the kids escape with Ahsoka and Hu Yang and R two, and then uh, Katuni goes with Hondo. And there's there's an interesting scene where she still hasn't um, put together her lightsaber. And they're in Hondo's cell, and he he and he uh, he's the one who kind of encourages her to be able to put the lightsaber together. And it's almost like they were trying to kind of build some sort of kinship between her and Hondo. Like in the end, they end as he's leaving. Like he looks at her and nods, and they she kind of smiles. And like they they they, they were trying to uh, make something there, and, I, and I, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work. But I think it's something they could have done. Is if they had her and Honda like separated somewhere, like separated off from the others, and like pinned down under a fire, and then he has to kind of talk her through being able to clear her mind and do and create the lightsaber. I think if that something like that had happened, it would have it would have made their connection feel a bit more earned. So now to bring this to full fruition, Hondo needs his own Logan esque story, full feature length. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I, I love that scene, though, where he is captured and he's trying to calm her. And, and Hu Yang like, gives her all of this advice. He's like, yes, I was just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, like just kind of go back to that. What, whatever fatherly instinct he has, like he saw back in uh, when he told Boba Wan to give up the hostages. Like he has some kind of fatherly instinct. It would be cool to see a bit more of that here. And, uh, you know, not to jump too far ahead um, and try to avoid spoilers, but it and I, I haven't really seen much of it. I, I don't know if it's explored any further, but it kind of reminds me of maybe it was hinted at a little bit as well in Rebels between he and Ezra, where that offer was kind of extended. Yes, training up another young generation of scum and villains. Moss Eisley has to remain populated. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they, they Hondo escapes on a ship with Katuti, and the other guys are look like looks like they're abandoned and they crash, and there's this really crazy shot of a. Uh, of Grievous like running through the dust like this scorpion or spider it's like super terrifying yeah I think just you know we don't get a whole lot of Grievous in this episode well I mean we get a decent amount uh but I love the way they treat Grievous throughout this whole series where you know they're able to maintain that certain level of cowardice a little bit in his character and somehow never really undermining how scary he can really be you know Mm mm-hmm that shot is really, really cool. Yeah, I don't know if it's cowardice as much as the total lack of honor. That I mean, that is true. I mean, he's consistently putting himself one-on-one with people like Kenobi. So yeah, eventually, like, Grievous is about to catch them, but then Hondu grows a heart and goes back to uh, to rescue them. And I like how he's trying to act like the whole thing was just a rescue attempt. Like, back when it first started, when he first attacked them, oh, that was just a rescue attempt. They were stranded in space, and you know, He's trying to get the uh, the Republic to um pay him for it. So, of course, the general went and had my men and equipment. Some of them died, I think. It even feels like uh, they're acknowledging like how much darker he was before. Where they're like, I, I don't remember if it's Ahsoka who who kind of calls him out on it, and he's like, uh, like, well, now I like it. <laughs> like, he's just completely go with the flow in whatever situation he's in. 
yeah so that's then it ends and obi-wan kind of you know draw your lightsabers young jedi and they do this really cool uh three musketeers salute together and it's really epic and heartwarming one thing i do want to comment on is this this, this episode directed by brian kaylin o'connell he's the same one who directs the uh, later episode uh the the lawless which we had we, we thought was like one of the most beautiful episodes in the season when we talked about it with josh last night and, and you'll hear it later uh but yeah he uh, i've really noticed this guy has a really great uh visual sense yeah he he's definitely bringing a very cinematic look to a lot of this where you know, he's, he's, he, I've noticed a lot of the time he just, he moves the camera like it's a, it's a physical, tangible object that he's kind of got to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it bring, it makes a lot of these shots look really cool. And the next one is utter trash. Let's just skip over it. Right. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, persevere through it all. So next episode is Secret Weapons, uh, directed by Danny Keller. And this arc is by Brent Friedman. And it's kind of terrible. This one, R2-D2, is selected to be part of a team of droid commandos under the, squad. Under the command of a frog, and they go do things, and I, I really don't care. Yeah, so I <laughs> I didn't actually watch this arc in full the first time I went through the series. <laughs> like, I was in full Clone Wars mode, and like, you know, just spending my entire life watching it. And I got to this, and I was like, why am I watching stuff? droids do stupid things and there's a frog and okay we're on a planet staring at the sun for a half hour it really bothered me so i basically just fast forwarded through it until we came to greg i was like oh a clone i'll watch him for a while and then he disappeared so i fast forwarded again until the end we saw anakin and obi-wan on the uh, at the, the uh un conference <laughs> so this was actually my first time watching it and it kind of justified why <laughs> I skipped through it the first time. First time um, through, you had that Obi-Wan moment like, wait a second, we're smarter than this. Yeah. So it's what it is. Just it's They're sending a, a team of droids under the command of this super tiny guy who's Colonel Gascon, who's going to hide in one of them. And they're going to go steal basically an Enigma device, which is, which is pretty cool. Kind of another connection to um World War II. It's the, 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 the key to all this. Uh, the separatist codes, which is kind of calling back to the Enigma devices, which the Germans used uh, in their U-boats and with all their various communications during World War II. And uh, like, I guess the kind of the main character in this is the uh, mech, not mech droid, pit droid, not mech droid. Forty-seven, as he makes clear. and he is horrifyingly bad. And I just hate every second he's on the screen. He's pretty much Jar Jar, and he sucks. And I wanted him dead. But we're meant to stare at him a lot, and I don't like it. <laughs> Did they not hear Anakin and Phantom Menace? All you got to do is hit the nose, and it shuts them up. Someone should have done that long ago. Yeah. So we have, a, but a Gascon is a, I guess the one with the arc, and he's kind of a pompous idiot uh, with a huge minority complex. Yeah, and that, that, that's the that's the real problem with this arc is. Like, he's a completely one-note character. 47 is a completely one-note character. And the droids, all they do is beep and boop. So we're stuck with two kind of characters that might, might, well, 47 would be terrible in any, any circumstance. Gascon, I think he could have been great as a side character. But since now he's got so much focus and he has that one note of being, you know, this his massive minority complex and he, where he's tr- constantly trying to boss everyone around. It just gets old, you know, and this arc is four episodes long. Why? Yeah, that's that's the biggest failing here, because honestly, 
you condense this down. I, I think the the ending of that being like this, you know, suicide bomb almost with that ship is pretty unnecessary. I, it just feels like this afterthought, final short 15-minute adventure after their story happens. I think if you condense this down to just one or two episodes, you could have had something like the uh, the Nomad droids, which I actually liked the second part of that episode with C-3PO and <laughs> R2-D2. and uh, It's completely ridiculous. Um, I, I didn't like the first part just because it felt too much like a fairy tale, but I thought they were able to find that fun balance of whimsical while still being Star Wars and you know, I, th- I think something like that could have been done here, but when you're having to take these very small stories and just pull them out for such a long period of time, I mean, 20 minutes just feels like a good long bit during this. And then there's another 20 minutes, and another 20 minutes, and another 20 minutes, and it just, I, w- I was I was feeling like Gascon when he was stuck in the void, just screaming at the sky. I was I was watching this with my sister, and I was convinced I was on the third episode. I was like, all right, we starting the fourth one right now and she's like wait i thought this was only three and i'm like no 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 and i looked it up and i'm like oh gosh it is i'm only halfway through <laughs> yeah so they go and they steal it very easily which whatever but the thing that doesn't make sense is the the separatists are obviously completely aware of the fact that republic droids broke in and stole their decoder device so they changed their code the thing about stealing a decoder device is that you they, they can't know you have it. Because if they know you have it, they're going to stop using that code. <sighs> this series isn't normally so dumb. Yeah, mate. It, the show makes itself or makes it harder on itself so often where it's just when you don't make mistakes like this for like almost five seasons in full Stupid stuff like this just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Um. What one positive is like I even bagging on Gascon, and I think he should definitely be a side character, not a lead. However, I think he's uh, he's very well voiced by uh Stephen Stanton, who's the guy who also voices Tarkin. I think he's 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 very fun in small doses. Like when he first comes in, he's doing his whole drill sergeant routine. I think my favorite part of this arc is when he's even though I I I am kind of questioning my 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 sanity. When we're on the second episode of these characters when he is out in the desert and just the sun's blazing down he's going through his entire uh you know, psychological breakdown it is kind of funny it's a very good vocal performance yeah he's he's a fun character and i wouldn't even mind him showing up in some sort of further capacity later um but yeah just know know how to use him because he's you know i think the the reaction of this arc i think is pretty universal if i'm not mistaken so you know, don't throw everything good out of here. Mm-hmm. So, so what they happen is they, they escape and they go through uh, like an asteroid field, which is a really cool effect. So like these ice asteroids with these like blue wavering streaks by them. It's really cool looking. But then they crash on basically a planet that's is pretty much crate. It's just flat salt, uh, as far as the eye can see, and there's no sun, and it's just this is the vo- they call it the void. And they're want just wandering around, and they kind of wandering for a couple hours, and they come across an identical ship with four droids and a dead pilot. It's just kind of, it really feels a lot like uh, uh, the World's End, the, the third part of the Caribbean film where Jack Sparrow's in Davy Jones' locker, kind of just wander on this desert. There's a lot of the same vibes. I, I was half expecting like a ship floating on crabs <laughs> to just kind of go by in the background with Jack Sparrow running after it. 
Um, so yeah, it's just a lot of wandering, and then they uh, they find some birds and they ride birds into town because that that happens. <laughs> and uh, so next episode is missing in action. This one's directed by Stuart Lee. And this one, they uh, they find they finally find this town, and they discover a clone who has no memory of his identity and is working as a waiter slash slave in a restaurant. There, this episode is about them in town trying to convince uh, the clone whose name is Gregor that he's actually a clone, and not a um. Uh, what is what does what, what he what does the guy say he is? The, the mean Russian uh, bartender guy. Nine um whatever his race is. He's bad because he's Russian. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I'm completely losing my train of thought. There's so little to, to actually talk about with these episodes. Um, yeah. So as it goes on, we find out that he is actually a command, a clone commando, and he was wounded in a battle, and the bartender guy found him and basically keeps him. He keeps him in an apartment and says that his his wages don't even cover the rent, so he doesn't have to pay him. And then they tell him who he is, and he finds out, and then they leave. Um, but then we come to the best part of this this, this entire arc. So Gregor's re- regained his memory, and he has his armor. Oh gosh, the clone commando armor is—I don't know if we mentioned it before, but it is so epic. What I love—I mean, if for anyone who's played uh, Republic Commando, it's an amazing first-person shooter game where you're just like battling through the trenches of Geonosis. Some of the coolest action in any Star Wars game ever. Um, this is this is that design like verbatim, uh, and so to see it here in this capacity was just awesome. The the yellow and the the like neon blue visor, it's it's such a cool image. Yeah, and so they go and they have to steal a ship from the separatists, and in what is one of the coolest shootouts in the series, Gregor covers them and just blows everything up um, while he's being awesome, and they fly away and the thing blows up, and I think we're kind of supposed to. Assume that he died, but he didn't. <gasps> Spoilers, but yeah, it's just Gregor's last stand is just a really great sequence. I guess they re- they realized that they really needed to put some excitement back into this series before they lost the entire audience. So they put in like one of the coolest action sequences in the series right here. Yeah. You can only imagine people who are watching this without the the privilege of Netflix. It's just oh, another week of this. But uh, yeah. at least they were rewarded for their, their patience. Oh, I can't imagine what they thought <laughs> when the last episode came out. Like, oh, I thought it was getting cool, but no. We're back with your favorite frog and Pitroid. Uh So yeah, last episode of this arc is uh, Point of No Return, directed by Bosco NG. And this one, they discover an, old, uh, an abandoned Republic cruiser, and it's a bomb! Or it's a trap! More like, uh, yeah. I think the, the the opening sequence is pretty creepy where they're kind of going through the ship and it's all empty and they come onto the bridge and they find the crew, but they're all holograms. It's a, it's a you know, fun little sequence. Um, um, so yeah, they, they find a bunch of droids who have survived. And then there's this really crazy sequence where they're trapped by like thousands of buzz droids. And it's, it's pretty disturbing. Um, but they second round to space and then they go. So the, the, uh, the, the, the bomb, the, the bomb ship, which is loaded up with a bunch of some kind of explosive is planning to ram into the Republic strategy conference, which just seems like a bad idea to have all your people at all, all your military hierarchy at a highly publicized event during wartime that is directly within a hyperspace lane of the enemy. Just maybe not the best idea. 
Yeah, so they save the day and blow it up early, and that the explosion is I, awesome. That's I was about cool. to say, if I had anything positive about this, is that effect is really cool. One, the sound design is really awesome. You kind of get maybe a little similar ideas to like the um, the seismic charges from Attack of the Clones, where you just pull the sound out, and then it's just you know it's like cranking the volume up to eleven afterwards. And I love that we see it from the conference's point of view. So you just like shockwave after shockwave, and then there's like all this debris and just huge chunks hitting the ship and like every every time something hits you're like wincing because you think it's going to crack the glass and you know depressurize everything it's a really well done sequence that's what's so crazy is it really really does feel like this is this is this heavy impact like it's not just like one wave and everybody kind of falls back and stand back up it's just like 15 seconds of just being forced down on the ground and knocked up against everything coming your way like you know for as as disinterested as i was for so much of this i kind of found myself like for like man i forgot about this like this is this is pretty intense and, and just the visuals of the explosion itself like all the different colors and stuff as it's just kind of spewing out it looks really cool too yeah uh so archer drinking the bomb and this is another stupid thing like where he's kind of going back to his kid show roots it's where he was like he was on the ship and we saw this explosion that vaporized the ship and like knocked not like knocked other ships out of the sky miles away but somehow he he survived like come on like they they, they put all that money into creating one of the most impressive explosions on the show only to say oh yeah but the droid survived come on come on we're better than this yes yeah so that was the worst arc in this ser- season and possibly the series except uh it's not bombad jedi so uh before Josh comes back, uh, wait, Josh is coming back. Yeah, he's, he's coming back. He said he'll be back. Uh, I thought we got rid of that guy. Uh, he, he had more to say apparently, because these are recorded at two separate times and stitched together. Me and my naivety and um, just, I guess, memory that is failing me. When I rank this, I'm gonna say some positive things about uh, a sunny day in the void. Um, give yourself <laughs> a hearty chuckle at my expense as I say that, and no. <laughs> That in retrospect, I mean none of it. You know, if you had actually watched these ahead of time, you know, before recording, you might have known that. Maybe, but at least I, I lived in blissful ignorance for just a day longer. Um, I don't know. Re- replace it with an extra episode of, of Maul or Ahsoka or something. All right. Fair enough. Oh, look, Josh is back. How you doing? Hey, sorry, guys. I just wandered away for a little bit. and Now I'm back. You didn't miss the best stuff, so it's okay. It's all right. I I grabbed on to a, a pergle and I got hyperspaced away, and now I'm back. Oh dear! Now you remind me. <laughs> I have many things to say about those, but it's not not for uh, a long sorry, time. Sorry, triggered, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the podcast pretty much went to hell after you left. So welcome back. <laughs> all right. So for this, we are moving on to the Darth Maul Vandalore arc. Uh, the first episode of that is Revival, although this was aired as season five's uh, premiere episode because mm-hmm. people out there are idiots or something. Uh, so this one, we well, have... their reasoning in this one actually makes a semblance of sense as, you know, like opposed to before, because the previous season ended with these great mall episodes and Lucas was mm-hmm. like, people are ready for some more mall. We'll throw the first episode as a premiere and then we'll get back to that later. <laughs> I, I won't accept it. They don't deserve defending. 
Wow. All right, so this one we have Maul and Savage going to forcibly recruit Hondo and his pirates uh, to their cause as Obi-Wan and Adigalia pursue them. And just like right in the opening, we see them like slaughtering Jedi and we know <laughs> this is serious. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not a good start for the Jedi. It, they just clear they easily dispatch a, some of them. No bueno. And they go and rob uh, some uh, space company. I forget which one they are. But we have a really interesting scene where they kind of have the, their power struggle and Maul essentially forces Savage to become his apprentice. And you know, he, he stops. He stops. They've been calling each other brother to this point, but then he stops calling him brother and then it just it calls him uh, apprentice basically for the rest of this arc until the end. It, it was just really cool seeing how now Darth Maul wants to become like he, you know, he was he was cast aside by by city uh, by, yeah, by Sidious, and now now he's trying to reclaim his birthright as a Sith and you know become a Sith in his own right with his apprentice. And Savage, being rather thick, just kind of goes along with it. <laughs> I love the way that this episode opens. Um, it feels this to me. This is one of the most cinematic feeling arcs of the entire series. Um, just opening on the ship with almost no dialogue, super like dim lighting. Um, and then, you know, they take on the, the droids and they even like go around and start searching the room before any bit of dialogue is, is said. And just the tone and the music it's, is creating this really cool atmosphere that feels different from everything. It's especially everything we saw before at this point, chronologically. Um, and then you had that, that confrontation feels so, it's it's odd. I, I wonder. Do you think uh, Savage was genuinely like planning on on taking on Maul at that point? Because it seemed like before now, he had just been entirely loyal. I think planning is beyond Savage. Yeah, Savage very much seems like um, you know, it's like if if we want to imagine uh, Maul, kind of how he was in the Phantom Menace. He was very much, and this is something they characterized him in, and like a lot of the. Uh, in the Maul comic or the Darth Maul comic that came out um, a year or two ago. Uh, it was like a five or six series run comic. And they kind of, basically the idea was that he was sort of like a, a, a cage dog um, and was just kind of this rage machine. Um, and that's kind of what Savage is in the Clone Wars is he's sort of just like this, this event, not even an avenging angel, but sort of just like a, um, a chaotic presence of, um, I don't know, flailing lightsabers and severed limbs, um, and breaking people in half and things like that. So he's just, um, he's just this, this force of rage or this force of, of death and doom sent into just to kind of create chaos and sow chaos in the galaxy. And, Maul manages to sort of harness that because of their brotherly connection. Otherwise, I, I doubt that they would have found any sort of um, long-term, uh, um, I don't know what the right word is, alliance between the two of them lasting. Hmm. Yeah, and that's why I just, it feels like the defining outside of him just being this, like, rage monster on the field of battle, it seems like the defining character trait for him would be, like, his loyalty because we see it pre you know like unnatural growth with him trying to spare his brother's life um and trying to save him and now 
it, it seems like he really has completely latched on to Maul. Uh, and so I, I just wondered if, if he, you know, not even planning, but if in that moment when he ignites his sabers, this, if he was genuinely planning on taking on Maul, like to the death or anything, because it, it feels almost different from from who he was. Uh, it almost to me, it felt more like, especially considering he said, you know, we're we are equals in this. Feels like he would have tried to just kind of beat him in a in a show of strength because that's just been something he's been able to do so easily uh, before because he's always the strongest guy. And in in what feels like to me this this moment of like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll show him that I am his equal, and then just get get thrown on the floor instantly. And you have that line like, "You've grown so powerful." Um, he mm-hmm. seems taken aback. It seems like his intent in the moment was to prove himself to his brother and then he just has his butt handed to him <laughs> which, which is which is pretty much how it works with the Sith and then visually just looks awesome with his giant robotic leg just grabbing his face and flipping him over and so they they go and they're they're found by uh by, by some of uh, Hondo's pirates so they quickly recruit <laughs> Hondo's like traitors scum I'm so proud <laughs> and I love just like the whole thing. You know, that's listen. Those traitors are no longer my men. But then, as, as soon as he gets them into a trap, he immediately is all buddy buddy, and he's able to talk them back, back uh, into his own service. And you know, th- that's why he survives so long because he's because he's pretty much the best. Yeah, it, yeah, it's why he's alive in Rebels. As I say, it's, it's amazing what they've been able to do with a character because you'd think that kind of. That type of character who's who's he's the lovable bad guy, you know, and he's you know, even even when he's doing something wrong, you still like him and he's trying to be buddy buddy with everybody. They're really able to maintain that kind of character over so many seasons and it never gets remotely old. No, yeah, I mean I that's what made him such a lovable character is he he was very much a, a likable scoundrel, very much in the same mold, but far goofier um than Han Solo, obviously. Um, and obviously in Rebels, he's he's much more of like a sad shell of himself to a certain extent. Um, but here all in he Clone Wars, he's he's very dangerous. Yeah, all he's got is all he's got is um. Oh dang it, I can't remember his name right now. <sighs> Shoot, Melch. That's it. Got it, Melch. Uh, yeah. So um, they kind of go into this battle where uh, Adi Galia and Obi Wan engage uh, Maul and Savage, and the pirates are fighting each other. Then Savage. Just takes out Galia, uh, and he's so brutal. And he just comes in and just knees her against the ship. And I'm not. I'm, she might have been dead by the time she hit the ground right there. It, it's it's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, we both said yeah at the same time. <laughs> you go, please. You are okay. one of the co-hosts. I was because um, you know, I always you know one of my favorite things about re-going through this series is you know since it's six whole seasons you kind of forget moments and i forgot that she died here and i'm just sitting up in my room watching it by myself whenever he just rams her with his horns it it made me like audibly gasp in the moment um and then it like it goes even further than that like when he he pulls the horns out and she falls you can actually see like the bloody mark like the marks that she was impaled with in her stomach Mm -hmm. as she drops it's just you know they're instantly able to capture that sense of brutality that they had with him uh, in his first arc, where it just felt like you put him on the field of battle, and it's just this 
this brute force of destruction and instantly we're just back into that same mold where you know even these jedi masters are just you know dropping around him mm-hmm. yeah and they're and they're floored by the you know not to borrow straight from his name but the savagery of their you know their hatred and their how they fight um something that maybe they just they can't fathom um in the jedi order is this sort of brutality and in the sense you know that their hatred is as you know to to borrow from what city says the hatred that makes them stronger because when mm-hmm. we see uh, savage's training under dooku uh we talked before on that episode about how in a weird like it, it's it it's like a broken mirror of um of what the jedi teach or not even that just like the complete opposite like philosophically where the jedi are about suppressing emotion especially anger and hatred and just being at peace with yourself and dooku is just it is about being as angry as you can and then expressing that physically um and so to have the jedi be taught about peace and self-restraint and self-control being confronted with these two people who are like physically harnessing their anger and their hatred into some of the most brutal like battle tactics and and uh and combat ever it does seem like they are you know there's moments where i think both of them try kicking savage and he's just like it just makes him mad and he looks at him and they just seem completely taken aback by like <laughs> what is this just like this monster with a saber yeah and then we get this incredible sequence where obi-wan he's taking up Adi's lightsaber and he's fighting them both and it's it's crazy because he completely abandons his normal defensive uh fighting style he just like goes i I mean it seemed like the most similar i could i could find would have been ventress like the way he's this con he's constantly attacking like jumping back and forth between the two of them one on each side and he keeps going back to kicking savage's one knee and he's like and it's just it's probably one of my top five uh, lightsaber fights in the entire uh series it's just really beautifully choreographed the way he's able to hold them both off at once and i like that he's he's able to see that he needs to like he he rarely ever goes to the offensive. He almost always fights in this very um, defensive style. But to see him go in this entirely entirely offensive attack mode was really cool. Yeah, and it, it it's kind of basically an outplaying of like he's in survival mode and he knows the only way that he is going to survive this is if he sort of embraces a little bit of their I don't know insanity, their craziness, their rage. To a certain extent, I can't imagine that he's he's not channeling some of that um, in this mode because I, you know, it's it's definitely the it's the I don't think it's really the Jedi way to fight dirty like that, um, or at least it's not normal from what I I can remember about you know lightsaber tactics for Jedi from like old Legends material. Um, but, you know, it's not really the, the Jedi way to take advantage of your opponent quite like that. That's a little bit more of like, a, you know, caged animal sort of fighting because um, he's clearly he's clearly outnumbered and he's just got to find a way to survive. That's a good fight. Yeah, it feels like he knows that the, the second he lets them on the offense, he's done. You know, so the only tactic mm-hmm. at this point, you force them on the defense because the second they're not having to ensure that they're defending once they get on the attack, he's completely done for. Yeah, so he ends up uh, breaking Savage's knee, then cutting off his arm. 
I like how his, like the, that green Night Sister magic just kind of leaks out of the, out of the arm out of the wound. Mm-hmm. You see, like, yeah. he's still he's still powered by whatever whatever that was. Yeah, it's like it's magics, or you know, basically how they put it, and that that's kind of what props up the Night Sisters, and you know, the um, I don't know, I don't think they're, I think they're called Night Brothers or something like that, um, but you know the. I mean, it's the kind of the same thing with Maul even too. Like they're, they're basically given their strength through this sort of magics or this, this different way of channeling the force. That's almost like necromancy to a certain extent. Um, you kind of get a little bit more of that in rebels where you, when they go to Dathomir, it, it seems more like, a you know, uh, that they are more like necromancers and they're zombies and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely this really cool moment where when he, you cut off his arm, it's it's not going to shoot out any blood because it cauterizes, but it's going to get this little bit of gross, like, green fog coming out of his arm. And in the moment, it's like the most violent, like, moment in the series almost at this point because, you know, not that, the, not that the series has ever really shied away from Because dark- it's been super tame up till now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, not that it has ever shied away from being surprisingly graphic for a quote-unquote kids show, but most of the time it, it seems like they at least try to keep it kind of off-screen. But here, I mean, you just see the arm come clean off, and for the rest of the episode, like with his arm gone, when he walks, like you see the actual like bone <laughs> in it. Like they they've got it animated and everything. It's just it's really brutal. Yeah, so they, they Trish tries to run back and recruit the pirates, but they're gone. <laughs> Insolence! We are pirates! We don't even know what that means! <laughs> One of his best lines. And then it ends with Palpatine um, making sure that the Jedi don't pursue uh, Maul any further because he has his own plans. Next episode is Eminence, directed by Kyle Dunleavy. It was when Death Watch discovers Maul and Savage. Uh, they're stranded on their ship, and they form an uneasy alliance uh, and with, a, to, with a plan to retake Mandalore. And I like how just right from the beginning, neither side trusts each other at all. Like bo- both of them are like openly talking about how, yeah, as soon as we get what we want, we're just gonna kill the other guys. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, just the this whole arc is basically, um, you know, kind of the the shadow collective that forms out of this. Um, is that what it's called? You know, you yeah. So that's that's. Was it- that's what uh, Maul will call. That's what it's his sort of like cabal of criminal organizations is called as the Shadow Collective. But it's a uh, Crimson Dawn in Solo, right? It's different. Okay. Yeah. Spoilers. Crimson Dawn <laughs> is different than Shadow Collective. Yeah. Okay. Now so we we, we don't know. There's the, right. We don't know like what sort of you know through line there is between those two. Um, Obviously, we there's a little bit of a gap um, from what we know about what Maul is doing between the his ending arc in like I think as far as we've got was like Sons of Dathomir or Son of Dathomir and what happens in Solo and he's in charge of a criminal organization. So yeah, we're we're we yet to know what kind of uh, you know red lines we got to all put together on a map to figure out what's going on there i'm ready to pay all of the money to see it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i understand yeah i i was surprised by that addition to that as well um but uh yeah i guess we'll wait and see but anyways getting 
getting back to this, yeah, I mean, basically, it's, it's kind of like they're they're both just using each other to try and get power, and it's like the the entire thing is just who can out who can out deal and out maneuver the other one to be in charge once all the dust is settled and all the bodies have been counted. Yeah, probably the one who still has a head. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so Maul basically comes with a plan to gather together all the all kinds of criminal organizations like the uh, the Pike Syndicate and who are the other ones? The uh, Black Sun Crime Group, and which <laughs> he, he recruits them rather brutal fashion. Savage just throws his lightsaber and cuts off the entire High Council's heads. Which, uh, yeah. yep, which is pretty awesome. It is so yes. cool. One thing that I did want to talk about that I, I didn't even bring up in the previous episode that we haven't talked about yet is just how good of a job Sam Witwer is at like playing Maul here. Yeah, you know, obviously we talked a bit about it uh, in, in his initial return, but you know, you you said you know, he's kind of described as like that, just a caged dog, and it's weird because that's exactly the the vibe that I got from him here, where he it's you know he clearly thinks the world of himself. You know, he is the rightful heir to the the entire Clone Wars. Like, this was supposed to be his war. Um, he was supposed to lead all of this and be the face behind it. And it's taken from him. So, he, he carries himself as if he's entitled to all this. And he, he almost puts on, like, this noble, not noble, but, like, very upright and proper. But it seems like his kind of animal instincts are always trying to get out like in the scene when he's talking with um hondo in in the previous episode like any second he's just ready to like just start yelling he's but he's always like slightly restraining himself um like restraining what feels almost like just this madness like this desire for chaos but he is kind of playing himself as this very like distinguished kind of person um, and it, it, I just whenever you had described him as that, like that—that's how they portray him there. It's just weird because that's exactly how I how I picture him here. Um, and I, I love the dialogue between he and his brother, uh, especially in the first scene, or maybe it's the second scene with them when they're actually with the um, the black hand. Whenever um, Savage is saying, like, I, I'm pretty sure this Vizsla guy is going to betray us. And Maul, who's just like so confident in his plans, uh, his line, you know, they know nothing of our intentions. This revelation will come too late. And he's just <laughs> completely positive how all of this is going to play out in his head. Uh, yeah, I think with Maul, we get probably our best look just into the mind of a Sith. Because um, we, we, we're never really given Dooku or Sidious's POV. But I, I think it's just that that un- unsatiable, insatiable uh, desire and a hunger for power, and how basically if you can't have that, you go mad. There's just that, that's what the, the dark, that loyalty to the dark side kind of does to them. It's interesting seeing uh, Maul and Ventress, who are both kind of in very similar situations, um, and you pretty much see like the two different ways that this can play out. Which is one, you you pretty much you're lost with no real purpose and you do what she does and it's just like become a bounty hunter and slowly try to find her way as an individual or you go the mall route which is try to consolidate everything that you that was supposed to be years before 
Yeah, I think Maul kind of encapsulates a little bit more of what we might think a a Sith Lord was like in like the some of the older Sith and like the Legends era Sith that we know about, where they're just very much kind of like they're all their essence is evil. Whereas we get a much more refined sort of um Sith Lord with uh Dooku and uh Sidious and I mean I would say even a little bit more like I think that's what Sidious wanted in Anakin Skywalker until Anakin basically almost blew it, you know, at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Um yeah, so they go out they, they their first target obviously is Mandalore and they basically create chaos by having the criminals kind of come in and shoot up the place and then the Mandalorians come in, they have these mock battles, or the Death Watch comes in, they have the mock battles and win the citizens over. And this is where we see you know the downfall of Satine. She's been around, I think, since season two, maybe even season one. Um and this is really where you see just like I, I've always been a big fan of her and had a lot you know a lot of sympathy for her, even though I disagree with her. And you, I think you really see here how she is a pretty disastrous leader. Um, like she, 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 even though she may have you know the, the strongest moral integrity as as a leader, she does create a government that could be pretty much overthrown overnight. She's, there's really there's no real stability underneath her pacifism. It just it was it was like she was basically taken down just like that. It's really sad to watch because she has had so much integrity yeah i mean it, it's kind of based on when you have like a, a neutral stance like that that it is going to be based on the the moral backbone of whoever is kind of leading this charge and you know we've this is kind of just an outplaying of something that you see a lot in the star wars galaxy is when whenever you take a very neutral stance it doesn't last very long um, this is something that's been played up in the new canon as far as like the Force Awakens time period and the rise of the First Order um, because there is a strong political element that desires to disarm and to not have like, a, you know, a standing army and things like that. It leads to um, a very vocal anti uh, base that is very much against that. Um, but then there's also, you know, you have to have like, princess leia who's sort of like this clarion call saying like hey there's this rising darkness called the first order and she eventually has to break off and start the resistance to be able to arm themselves against this uh encroaching evil um and so this is kind of like a small microcosm of of a problem that's played out in the star wars galaxy more than once Hmm. um where if you disarm and um kind of try to undo being able to protect your own people it's eventually going to cause problems where, where, which um, book is that that is in bloodline okay and it's also kind of a little bit it's mostly in bloodline but it's also addressed in little bits here and there in some of the other material around that time period um like in the the poe dameron comics and things like that i mean it's just so sad seeing her up there where she's in front of that the riot of people and previously just kind of just flies in and undermines like right right under her nose and then flies off mm-hmm. just, uh, it hurts yeah and it's tough to undo i mean if we know anything about mandalorians we know that they're a warrior people it's kind of tough to undo you know what has made them who they are um and it clearly seems that even in the time period of like you know when you have uh sabine 
and all of these other Mandalorians, they still very much ascribe to a warrior past um, that this is almost like an experiment that is not going so well. Mm-hmm. And Satine is really trying to make it work, but it it doesn't end up working because everyone at the end of the day still wears armor and flies around in jetpacks and has guns. Because that's so much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost, you know, speaking of just like micro versions of, of what we're seeing in the, the movies, the fact that Pre Vizsla can fly in and kind of like in a speech win over the people, it makes sense considering what we've seen with Mandalore. Like it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, well, first, he was the first to betray them. And then, you know, we had the... I'm sorry. What was the what was the name of the the guy from Corruption who turned out to be the bad guy? I forget his comic. Yes, uh, yeah. You ha- then you have him, um, and it just seems like you know there's scandals consistently going on at Mandalore because it is a neutral place and it seems fairly desirable for uh, you know both parties. It's always embroiled in something, and because because she makes herself and her you know just the entire way she runs things so available and so transparent um it's kind of easy to insert yourself in there and so whenever you are a citizen seeing your government almost you know consistently in some sort of scandal or in some sort of state of flux when you have this guy flying in who's like things keep happening and i'm here to make sure they stop happening like this and we're gonna go back to the way we were with these people, just like the way the entire galaxy may be okay with the Jedi going away, you know, they have their path the way it is. Their government has been so unstable thus far. You know, whenever you have someone like that, it makes sense that they're kind of like, you know, they're chanting Vizsla by the end of it. So, yeah, then, of course, Maul and uh, Pre Vizsla go at, uh, go at it together. And I, I, it, it takes a bit to buy that uh, Vizsla would be stupid enough to put... Uh, Savage and Maul in the same cell with, you know, without heart, with no special protection. But <laughs> he does. <laughs> of course, they escape, and then and then Maul goes and challenges uh, Vizsla to this you know ancient Mandalorian custom of the one-on-one duel. And this duel is really awesome. And I, I like yeah. that uh, Vizsla is almost a match for Maul. Like he for a while he's ahead. He's ahead, and he's using like every single contraption and trick he has. To, to to fight him and uh, th- again like i said uh the last fight with obi-wan and savage and maul is one of my favorites and this this is one of my favorites as well it's a really well done sequence mm-hmm. yeah and it's not made canon but uh until later um with like rebels where it talks about the jedi and mandalorian wars and things like that um or well it mentions old mandalorian wars and they mentioned that mandalorian armor and mandalorian weaponry was specifically designed to combat mm-hmm. jedi yeah and so you kind of get this idea it's like well why should this even be like a fair fight and it's it's because like essentially mandalorians because of their warrior heritage have managed to perfect how to fight jedi so um which is very interesting i was watching some of the behind the scenes and uh and uh Felody was saying, you know, that uh, Pre Vizsla had gained so many fans, they were really scared that, to have him lose. They had to be really careful to make it look like he didn't go down too easily, or say right, people right. mad at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, he certainly doesn't go down easily here. It's sort of up in the air, but you kind of know a little bit that you know Maul's eventually going to beat him out. I mean, all it really takes is just Maul being Maul for that to happen. Yeah, um, 
this is a really crazy sequence is oh gosh there's, there's one thing where he punches them and you can like, see spit flying yeah like they, they really go all out for this and it ends with a pretty spectacular beheading <laughs> this is not a kid show people um but uh, bo-katan uh refuses to join with them and she and takes a couple of people and they leave and for the final episode the lawless directed by brian Kalen o'connell um maul uses satine to set to lay a trap for obi-wan he doesn't go in knowing that Maul's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes in just because thinking it's, it's just a Death Watch, I believe. Yeah, and he goes in. He he actually man- manages to uh, rescue Satine, but he's pretty quickly uh, taken down. Yeah, I mean this this entire episode is is great. I I love this episode so much from beginning to end. Um, I love that it's this this uh, Obi Wan Kenobi's finally sort of lured in because this whole this whole conceit has been to lure in Kenobi, um, which is kind of funny. All this crazy stuff has happened because basically everyone wants revenge on Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> um, and he, he's a, he is. If he hadn't been a Jedi, he would have been a, a very wanted person. Um, so this is kind of playing out for him. Yeah. Um, you know, and, oh, man. I, I really don't know what to say. Like I have a lot of superlatives for this episode because I just think it's, it's probably it visually it's really cool. I think one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite visual moments in all of the clone wars is when they come out onto the battle scene happening yes. by his ship. And it just is like, this is, this is like one of the coolest things that you'll ever see in star Wars is, um, the Mandalorians fighting one another um and fighting for each other for on different sides all fighting um you know around this uh obi-wan ship as he's trying to escape with satine yeah this whole this whole uh, episode is really uh gorgeous visually yeah mm-hmm. something i've so noticed seems with, with uh especially with this arc like the enemy of my enemy is my friend seems to be kind of the guiding principle in uh all of katie lucas's arcs it's mm-hmm. so it's so interesting that like we talked about this before, but like it seems she's always she's always taking on like these really morally murky areas uh, for, and I think it's a very really interesting the way she um she's able to take vil- villain characters like even even like Bo-Katan or just like take these characters that were villains, and even if they stay villains, she's able to put some humanity into them. Yeah, it, it's amazing how. Uh this episode is very action oriented and it's very fast paced. Um, there's not a lot of time to breathe. Um, I've, of course there's, there's barely enough time to breathe, uh, when Satine meets her end, um, <sighs> which is very sad. Um, yeah. and just this awful moment of Obi-Wan basically having something taken from him by Maul, which, you know, obviously is going to draw the glee of Maul. Um, something that he wish wishes that he can inflict on Obi-Wan Kenobi for the rest of his natural life. Um, I can never watch this anymore without seeing um, his, like his hate uh, shrine to Obi-Wan Kenobi on Dathomir that we see in rebels where it's just like, it's like in, um, in the, I, I don't think it's, I think it's not in Dathomir language, but I think it's in like Sith scroll. It's basically scrawled in like blood. Like it just says Kenobi and you know, there's, picture of like a stained glass window picture of Satine and a bunch of different artifacts and the dark saber and all this other stuff. And 
I just can never not see that anymore, that he just takes so much glee in the fact that he's able to take this person that he cares about from him. That obsession is just unhealthy. <laughs> well, it drives him. It, make, it makes him strong. It's crazy, you know, just because this was he had such little screen time in the Phantom Menace. So they're mm-hmm. really having to like pull every bit from that, that they can to define his character. And like the thing that they latched onto is that, you know, he, this is something he's done before. Um, he took Qui-Gon from Obi-Wan and then for that, Obi-Wan, you know, presumably killed him, but now he's back. And like the first thing he wants to do again, because, you know, previously we thought maybe, you know, he, he's dead set on killing Obi-Wan. But then when we finally come down, like when we finally come to it, he's saying, yo, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to make you feel my pain. When in reality, like he's making him feel his pain all over again. It's like every person that Obi-Wan has really been attached to, that is the driving force behind Maul. Beyond, you know, what he says to previsors like fortune and power. It seems like at the end of the day, what he wants is just to make Obi-Wan hurt. Yeah, and even though this scene is so horrible, it is very well directed. Uh, just the way he, when Maul is walking down the stairs carrying Satine, like choking her behind him, at, like step by step as he goes on the stairs, or just the the way the whole thing is shot when he finally pulls her on and you're cutting between their eyes. And yeah, it's 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 rough, but it's, it's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And I like how Obi-Wan actually tries to, he tries to reach out to Maul like he, he talks about how you know, the Night Sisters made the choice for the dark side, uh, you know, for him as a baby, which, uh, which was a really interesting concept. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this. It's so, it's so hard. It's um, yeah, it's it's very much like kind of this um, uh, this repartee between the two of them that'll exist, and maybe that's just a moment of um, recognition, something that we get at the end in Rebels, where there's sort of like a an almost like odd admiration for one another at the end. Um, and th- this is maybe like the seeds of what will come later. But I also think, um, you know, this is him, him saying that, you know, acknowledging where he came from. Maul has to be at the very least, like a little bit more humanized to Obi-Wan because, you know, since his last meeting, Obi-Wan's been to Dathomir and he sees, the Zabraks are put like the male Zabraks are put through there mm-hmm. um you know and I think we actually I, I guess the both of us just forgot that this line happened because we we were wondering if um if that's how Dooku first came to you know if if uh Maul was pretty much the previous Savage for Dooku uh before even Ventress and this seems to confirm that for Sidious um because Maul was oh yeah sorry Dooku. yeah sorry uh, for Sidious and so, you know, since before that, all all he knew of Maul was he's just this this guy who doesn't talk and exists to like just cause pain. And he took you know his mentor from him, and now he's seen what he was born uh, was born in and what his life looked like. And so now he does kind of, but unlike before, he kind of has that little bit of of a uh, some sort of understanding that he can try to. Uh, try to confront or yeah. um, appeal to of course it doesn't work though yeah and if that wasn't enough emotion for one episode darth sidious shows up to uh show who's boss and <laughs> we have yet another really amazing lightsaber fight oh but before that when he's when we just see a savage and um 
and Maul at the end of the room, and they hear the guards choking, and we see the guards like pulled up choking on the wall like before Sidious even enters the room. Yeah, I love that moment where he's just like, there's, it's like terror, anticipation, and um, sort of like recognition all at the same moment where he just kind of like whispers, Master. And, you know, then the guards go up on the wall. Uh, it's I love that moment almost more than anything else there is kind of like the the recognition of an enemy, but also someone who is clearly superior to you in almost every way. And he has immediately has to start kowtowing to him because he knows he's out of his league. And this, this battle is incredibly epic. Uh, you know, City mm-hmm. is really two lightsabers, which okay it's awesome i'll take it and it's happened like, on, on the wall there's this like this kind of uh engravings of this ancient jedi battle which is really i never noticed before but it was really cool seeing that yeah. behind them and eventually uh savage is killed and again the the, the night sister magic kind of just oozes out of him and he's left as his old self and i like that right right as mm-hmm. he's dying um maul calls him brother again <sighs> I'm telling you. Yeah. That whole fight scene is incredible. I think one of my favorite moments is when you think Maul has like maybe the slight victory when he's able to push um, Palpatine over the edge and he just uses the force. He's like, as he's falling face forward, he uses the force to pull uh, Maul and Savage down right there with them. And you just see this huge smile on Sidious's face this entire time. And you've got that classic uh revenge of the sith like just over the top evil <laughs> cackle like almost over this entire battle and in between the the beginning which like whenever he chokes the guys it almost feels like they're directing like a horror scene but they make city scary again here but like just like the way he was you know in that that little bit from revenge of the mm-hmm. sith yeah and th- this was uh ian abercrombie's final performance as uh, palpatine he died uh, in january 2011 and this is actually his final acting performance as well but Man, this is this this is a really good uh, role to go out on, especially just as the uh, you know, as the uh, as the emperor. Just this is like probably the most powerful. I don't know, him against Yoda is pretty powerful, but I think this is like the most intense we ever see him like in, in all of canon. Yeah, I, I like I said, I just think that it's at this point we realize that obviously Maul's in over his head. And that, you know, Palpatine, he he takes such like a sick joy in fighting. Uh, like you said, that cackle that he has throughout the entire thing. It never seems like it's in doubt because he seems to be having way too much fun doing this. <laughs> you know, he's never he's never like scared or upset or anything like that. Um, like he is in Revenge of the Sith when he's fighting Mace Windu. Um, at this point, he seems to be very much having a grand old time mm-hmm. fighting two dark side users. And he even uses that twirling jump that he has in Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the line, there is no mercy. That's pretty much the Sith <laughs> kind of yeah. summed up right there. Yep, pretty much. And that's how we end. And you know, Maul's, uh, Maul's arc is pretty much left dangling for all eternity until Rebels. So the fi- the final arc for this season is sabotage. Uh, is the uh, the wrong Jedi arc. The first one, first episode is sabotage, directed by Brian again, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell, and this arc is written by Charles Murray. And in this we have Anakin and Ahsoka investigating a bombing attack on the Jedi Temple. And uh, right away we open with kind of a new concept that the public sentiment 
is turning against the Jedi. Like that, that, that's their, pretty much their first uh, theory after the bombing attack is that, like, not even that it's separatist, but that it's the 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 public's uh, perception of the war has become so negative, and since the Jedi have essentially become the face of the war, people are taking their anti-war sentiment out on the Jedi, which was doubtlessly what Palpatine uh, planned from the start. So, you guys, I'm sorry. I got totally lost because did you guys realize that Tim Curry took over for Ian Abercrombie when he died? Uh, yes, I did know that. <laughs> I don't know if I, sorry. I, don't know if I that, like him, though. I, I got totally distracted, so that was that was me being like, I did not know that for some reason. Yeah, he sounded... He sounded really weird in this in the, in this arc, in the final episode where he comes in. I don't know. It just it doesn't sound right. I miss I miss uh, Ian Abercrombie. Yeah. Oh well. Which I mean, Tim, Tim well, Curry. Well, anyways, is, you know, he's definitely a great actor, but uh, just something he's, he's he doesn't he's not as good, sadly. No, no. I mean, I mean, come on. Let's be let's be serious. If if we could, you know, if he could keep doing it, we would love it if he'd keep doing it. So. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll get us back on track. So I was I was thinking way too much about that um, at the moment because it was bothering me who took over for him, and I couldn't remember. And there we go. So anyways, okay, so we're moving on to Sabotage, and we're moving on to Ahsoka <laughs> and Anakin having to investigate a bombing at the Jedi Temple, which um, for me, this is a very interesting an interesting moment and an interesting start to the arc um, because they're brought in for this entire, um, you know, this bombing thing. And this really, this whole arc for the first part of it, um, it, it takes a big divergence from a lot of what we've seen in the season, which is big battles and things like that. And it moves more into like almost like a, a CSI episode for a little bit. Um, I love this, uh, this droid character that comes into mm-hmm. it. I can't, what, uh, what's his Russo, name? I- Russo. ICS. That's it. Okay. I- yes. Yeah. Played by our voice by D Bradley Baker, the very, very famous D Bradley Baker. Um, obviously the, the voice of all the clone troopers, <laughs> and um, about a hundred other characters in the show. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Basically everything that's not some of the main characters. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, this this episode is so interesting to me in how it, it kind of um, starts to, to it starts out as this investigatory episode um, and really kind of this interesting look at um, I don't know maybe something that we wouldn't really assume is the job of a Jedi but actually is probably something that they do a lot um, which is to you know investigate things like this they're almost like playing detective instead of being generals and things like that something that you had mentioned earlier that may be more of like what the jedi used to do a lot more before the the clone wars is they were doing you know obviously they were fighting to you know keep the peace but they were probably doing a lot more of this where it's like they were just like a galactic wide police force that um had maybe a little bit more intuition and the force on their side yeah and what what the jedi have become now is a huge uh, aspect in this because that, that, that's mm-hmm. when we meet uh one of the perpetrators uh she she's talking about you know that the jedi have become these warmongers and, and we see these protests outside the uh outside the jedi temple with with all yes, these people who've the political come to who are just you know sick and tired of the war even though it's not the jedi's fault but they, they they've made themselves the face and now they have to deal with the uh, the public backlash 
and I think that you know this this episode very much um, is is supposed to be you know uh, cinematically and TV heavy in how it's approached. Um, so uh, I, I think that some of the behind the scenes, if I remember correctly from some of the stuff that Filoni talked about, he said like this in, that the all four episodes of the story arc are named after various like Hitchcock narratives. Huh. Um, okay. And so that's why like this one's called Sabotage. Um, the Jedi who knew too much, um, you know, being the next episode and very much like all kind of borrowing from those arcs to catch a Jedi is the one after that. Okay. Um, I, I obviously recognize the Jedi who knew too much, but I never put two and two together the other three titles. But that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, you get this very much that the feel of these episodes are very Hitchcockian in how they're, you know, kind of un, unspooling and they're tense and you're not really sure exactly what's going to happen next. And, you know, you even think when they go to um, try and um, and track down uh, Jakar Bomani and then his wife, Letta, later on, there's very much like it's kind of shadowy and seedy and kind of feels like something out of like a noir film that would be very much a Hitchcock kind of movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, you, you get more of like these political aspects in here. I I. I there's a lot of things I could talk about in this episode, but I don't want to forget that this is a very important episode in establishing that there are people in the galaxy that do not want the Jedi to be involved in this war whatsoever mm-hmm. and that they blame the Jedi for what happened. Um, and that really does establish why people are able to buy the Empire's propaganda that the Jedi would, you know, or the Emperor, I guess, is propaganda that the Jedi turned on the Republic and turned on citizens and which led to their downfall. And, you know, at this episode, th- there's even reason for the Jedi to understand like, Hey, this could be what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as, as Anakin reminds Ahsoka, you know, like there's not, they're not, I mean, obviously they're exaggerating because the entire order isn't about to turn on everybody, but think about recent events. You know, we're coming off the heels of Dooku. We're coming off the heels of general Krell. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jedi themselves are being confronted with the fact that they're they are, you know, there are cracks within the order, yep. and um, it, it felt like in our Attack of the Clones episode, there are times where it feels like decisions that are being made are being made to to try to save face almost, um, like whenever Yoda says or whenever Mace says, you know, should we should we make it aware that our our ability to use the force is being diminished and Yoda says, you know, like, no, in the reasons there, you know, he says, or we shouldn't make our weaknesses known to our enemies, but it, it very much feels like the Jedi either think they have it all together or when they don't to try to like cover it up and make themselves look like they do. Uh, and here, you know, with all of these people and now with finally Barris Ophi, it's really being made apparent that these aren't just accusations coming from the outside these are very real um people discerning very real problems man very good point yeah and we we get a, a bit more of that with the we when we see tarkin come back and he wants to make this uh, like a police investigation since uh, civilians and clones died as well um but they, they're able to keep it at least for the time being uh, as a jedi investigation and i, I really like the, the scene uh, where they where they're having that conversation, we see Bar- like Barris just kind of in the background watching. Like I I never noticed before, but now that you know how this turns out, it was really cool how 
they 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 introduce her in a really kind of innocent way, you know, to remind you that she that she exists. But I like that they, they even then they were setting up what happens. Yeah. Yeah, very much like it does play out again to go back to that Hitchcockian thing um, or very much like a cinematic sort of where, you know, if you watch it again, things become more clear to you. Um, I I think they very much do play like who it's supposed to be close to the vest for most of it. But there are those little hints here and there um, that, uh, you know, and then, of course, if you discern by the end of it, it's like, okay, you know, it's it's got to be a Jedi. It's got to be someone like that. And I just remember, I think. I think actually the first time that I ever saw this arc, I actually had figured out by like before we found out that it was Barris that it was her, and I just, I think I specifically remember screaming at the screen <laughs> in excitement that it's Barris Offie, um, and I was really proud of myself, and now I'm not so proud of myself <laughs> for that story or telling you about it right now. Well, I, I didn't see that, so you can be proud of yourself. <laughs> about to say uh I, it's weird because you know watching it again my thought is like how could i have noticed like really there aren't even a whole lot of options for who it could be and yet for the entirety i'm like oh man i hope barris helps her out you know like, <laughs> I, I gotta figure out who this is they were friends they took down the george factory together exactly uh, you know although but what's cool you know you talk about how it's, it's very cinematic and how you know if you watch it a second time you're picking up on these things What's really cool is that's for this entire series because back in the in the Brain Invaders uh, episode, uh, we really noticed this time the conversation um, aboard the med ship before everything starts happening when they're just in the the mess hall. They're they're talking about what what the place is of the Jedi. You know what are we right now? And Ahsoka kind of gives is very like oh well, we're doing this for the Republic. We're you know, this is what we're doing. This is why our, our intentions are good and all this and that. And, and, uh, Barris kind of brings up the point like, well, what, what are we going to be, what are we going to look like after the clone war? Because it seems like, especially for Ahsoka, their involvement with the Jedi and everything being a Jedi looks like is defined by what the Jedi do in the clone war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because she's just a Padawan by the beginning of it. And so we already see Barris kind of pondering like, you know, it seems like if you were to ask somebody a decade ago what the purpose of the Jedi is and then ask them what it is now, you're going to get different answers. And she's all, she already seems to be a bit um, hesitant or at least, you know, questioning a bit of, of what the Jedi are and and what their real purpose and value is at this point. Another really cool thing I noticed is how by this time, a military bureaucracy has kind of arisen like that. That didn't really exist at the beginning of the war. You know, they, they had an army. And so they basically had to put the Jedis in charge of the clones because they didn't even have they had no uh, hierarchy to control it. But now you see we see in uh, back in the Citadel arc where Tarkin was talking about how he wanted to take the Jedi basically out of any kind of military leadership. And we see that that's what he's been working towards throughout. He's been creating you know, an army that's loyal to him. And we go to that, that, uh, the Colo- base of the, the military base, which is this really, uh, fascist mm-hmm. architecture, a uh, really, really cool looking design. The cinematography, the shots around there is amazing. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole thing is so just oppressive. Uh, but we said these clones do not take orders from Jedi. It's, it's so such a weird feeling when, when, uh, Sophie goes in there to question Letta and these clones are like, 
almost outright belligerent <laughs> to the Jedi and just use it to th- see how much the, the, the climate has shifted over the course of the series. And it makes sense, you know, why the Empire is able to function so seamlessly immediately following Order 66. This kind of fleshes that out because, you know, like you said, they were the face of the of the war effort and they were... Um, but before the clone army, you kind of question, like, what did an army look like? You know, what, what fought on behalf of the Republic? And it seems like, you know, like the, the Jedi were kind of like the first line of defense. But through Tarkin and, and all of these mechanizations, it's becoming very much like a self-sustained, uh, like a go- government that that really can order 66 and continue on perfectly fine. Yeah, and it seems someone like Tarkin... Um is perfect for the emperor because he doesn't seem intimidated by the Jedi at all. Um, and that's something that, you know, can obviously permeate in, um, into the empire and obviously can help people to sort of forget that the Jedi ever existed. Um, and that's something that I love about Tarkin even then, uh, in how he's portrayed in these episodes is how very much he doesn't seem to be phased by the sort of like, I don't know what maybe he would think is like the reputation or the pomp of the Jedi. Um, and he's very much into his own self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I love, I love the, the consistency of Tarkin being a very self-absorbed, um, dangerous person. Um, and, uh, you see that even here, even when he's not, uh, you know, a grand moth and, but clearly already seems to have the, you know, uh, have the ear of the emperor and vice versa. Uh, yeah. So then obviously uh, Ahsoka is, uh, Lada is killed. Ahsoka is framed. And like, I don't even know if Tarkin believes she's guilty, but this is what he's been waiting for. Kind of where he's, 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 you know, latching onto this because this is his chance to take action against the Jedi and, you know, get them removed from uh, military matters once and for all. So he's, he's out to, take Ahsoka down no matter what happens. And I really love the sequence where, where kind of her escape is facilitated. The, 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 she's given the card and so she's slowly working her way through the prison. And I, I really like it because it's, it's so scary because we're stuck in Ahsoka's POV to where she comes across the dead uh, clones who have been killed by a lightsaber. And then, then she's found by other clones. And it's just, we have, we, we, we know nothing more than her. And we, it's so, it's so, obviously understandable why she would just run because she's just had this conversation with, with Tarkin who's obviously out to get her to kill her and now she's so obviously framed and and man, it's, it's so really um really well done sequence as we're uh as she's slowly just making everything worse for herself by running but it, it's really understandable considering how, how well framed she was and the whole sequence with her you know running especially when she's out on the the, the industrial area and you have the ships flying by and shooting the stun the uh, stun rays at her it's just the the cinematography again this is the uh, same director as uh, last episode is so gorgeous um this is really really great wide shots and the music um, yeah and just the the lighting and the rain and i think one of the coolest like physical moments in the entire show is just as she is up on that like walkway and she's just doing these cartwheels with her lightsabers blocking all of these different stun blasts Mm-hmm. It's it's so visually striking, mm-hmm. and, and all this time we've had a uh, Anakin, who kind of came on the scene trying to, uh, to get her to stop, and it's, it's a really interesting place for Anakin to be. You know, he's obviously trying to get her to come back and talk to the council, but even though he understands why she's running, it's it's yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know where he goes, but it, it's really 
really heartbreaking. It's him, him trying to plead with her to come back and her trying to run. And then we have that, that, that kind of fugitive scene uh, at, at the um, before she dives over into the um, into the well that goes down into the underworld. Uh, just really powerful sequence as he's try, just trying to get her to come back. Yeah, kind of maybe even though there there comes that moment where he thinks that she's coming back at the end of this arc. This is very much kind of like maybe their their breaking point moment where it's like they know that they can never go back to the way that it was before um, after she's a fugitive from justice. Yeah, um, and, and Ahsoka seems to really, really realize that right before she jumps. she's She knows that something is very wrong with where this whole yeah. system is headed. It's so sad because Anakin seems very much under the under the belief, you know, that things will be made right again. You know, especially at the end of the episode when he holds out um, like the Gosh. the beads to her, and he the look on his face feels like it's very much expectant of her to to you know agree to it. And uh, but that that scene right in uh, in this episode, the tunnel scene, <laughs> honestly, this is one of the most well-animated scenes of the entire series. Uh, the facial animation here is just through the roof. When she And, like, just the physical animation as well. When she's, you know, pointing down, she's like, I am not going to go back and be uh, blamed for something I didn't do. And you can see how expressive their eyes are. And uh, the voice acting from, from Matt Lanter and um, oh Ashley Eckstein, they just... You know, at at this point, I think you know one of the the first thought that comes into my head a lot of times when I see cool moments throughout the show is just you know, man, how awesome would it be to see this in live action? Hmm. But honestly, here at this point, it feels like it's just irrelevant, just because of how expressive they are, how wonderful the acting is, and the cinematography. The moment she jumps and the camera just follows her, you know, the the idea that this is animated almost doesn't even just it feel relevant at all because i'm getting everything from this that i could in any other medium mm-hmm. so the ne- next episode they're uh they're, to catch a jedi they are sending both police and jedi and uh yoda wants to send anakin and plo Koon, but uh windu doesn't want anakin to go because he's a jerk <laughs> uh even though obi-wan <laughs> just tried to i'm i'm really happy that i'm really happy that this scene uh exists though because one of the things i noticed before this you know, you'd never really sense a whole lot of the animosity that you do in the movies between Anakin and Mace for a lot of this. I mean, it's kind of like subtle, but like even whenever they're both trapped together, it seems somewhat friendly. Um, and in the movies, it very much seems like Mace is skeptical of, of anything that Anakin could do um, to just, you know, like very verbally questioning um the validity of the prophecy about him and so for him it, this feels very much like the the episode three dynamic between the two whenever anakin says you're know, like oh she's my padawan he says and it's for that reason that i'm saying this um it seems like there's a lot of you know uh just not not really a lot of good good vibes going between the two at that scene yeah it just i i love the the vision of the underworld we get here. Like we've been, we've kind of dabbled in it throughout, but now we're like fully into this really dark, grimy, uh, kind of, it's, it's like a whole nother world. Like Coruscant's always been this bright, you know, elegant city. And now we're dead, like, you know, downtown Chicago or something. 
<laughs> I love, uh, and I know that they were they were planning on even with like you know the development of the game thirteen thirteen, kind of mm-hmm. diving more into um, the Coruscant underworld. And they've done a little bit here and there in some books and things like that, just talking about it. But it seems to be just kind of an acknowledged thing that the deeper you go down in um, uh, Coruscant, the 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 seedier and more grimy that it gets. And but you know, I think they're talking about like level thirteen, fifteen, and thirteen, sixteen, and things like that. So there's a lot of levels down more that you just don't want to go to. And yeah, it just I. It, it is really one of those moments where it's like Ahsoka's clearly she is kind of reached her own personal like hell because <laughs> she's in this the like, hellscape area of Coruscant that just is awful and miserable and um, she has no other course of action but to then start dealing with um, you know criminal elements at least in her mind you know for us we may know a little bit more about Asajj Ventress than others than she might um but uh, you know, they basically start working together because of, you know, they they kind of both were rejected, mm-hmm. um, by their own specific orders, and um, they managed to make this interesting connection, um, that would have been very interesting to play out even more if they had had more episodes of the show where they might have interacted a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I love that they don't have Ventress immediately come in, you know, wanting to help. She's not there yet. She's she's at, she's after Ahsoka for the bounty, of course. Um, right. But I do like the way that uh, Ahsoka is able to convince her to try and help, you know, sh- showing how similar their paths have been, and obviously, but you know, offering Ventress the pardon. <laughs> and I love when they're caught. She's like, "We don't want to fight," and she's like, "I do." And she pulls her helmet down. <laughs> yeah, was, she's a, she's a really fun kid. Like I I really love back in um, I forget I think Revenge when. Her and uh, Obi Wan briefly teamed up. I, I just like how they're kind of sticking ventures with these various characters who've, who she's tried to kill before, but now forming all these uneasy alliances. There's a, a lot of really fun mm-hmm. dynamics we get out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this leads up to one of my favorite fight scenes in in the entire season, which is the the like non lightsaber fist fight with all the with the clone <laughs> squadron with commander wolf squadron yeah um i love that because it's just this close quarter sort of like you know where you realize oh yes jedi are quite deadly even without a um a lightsaber i love that moment where it's just it's very fierce very brunt and they manage to incapacitate all the clones and they don't want obviously still don't want to kill any of them but they definitely manage to hurt all of them to be able to escape and i, I love how like well directed the, the fist fight is because you know you, you think it's one thing to really make lightsaber battles look really cool yeah. in an animation um and you can kind of have people you know jump around 60 feet in the air and, and look okay but here, I like the fact that they do kind of show a little bit of restraint where it really is just like this this physical brawl they're having. Um, and they don't go too far with the fact that, you know, they're not dealing with any physical actors. Yeah, the the, uh, the hand-to-hand combat has always been a huge highlight of the show for me. They found a really, really cool way to make kind of the martial arts look convincing and brutal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this episode ends with uh, Ahsoka being arrested. Obviously, she has, she has the big the fight with the cloaked... Uh, something which is very intimidating yes yeah, so they find her surrounded by all the nano droids and then oh man this bothers me so much 
<laughs> we see uh so after she's arrested i guess due to some kind of law since she's a jedi the senate the uh, the republic can't prosecute her so they go and request for the jedi to expel her so that they can prosecute her and these jerks basically they the only they're only doing this not necessarily because they believe she's guilty but simply because the the climate has become so uh volatile that they don't want to see seem, seem to be uh do anything that would could be construed as against the senate so since the senate has requested this you know this is this isn't a question of you know what's the right thing to do for Ahsoka and for ourselves as an order. It's simply you know, the most politically expedient thing to do, and so they they vote to uh, expel her. And I like we see here how Obi Wan's kind of becoming the conscience of the council. This is something we see a lot of in uh, the Dark Disciple book, but here mm-hmm. even here he's the only one trying to defend her. Even Plo Koon goes along with it. I mean, Plo Koon. Yeah. It. But, uh, it, it it's very um it's it it becomes terrifying i like i said before it it's very important that it sets up how the jedi council can be seen as having been corrupted um and blinded by the dark side of the force um both in matters of things like this and in matters of war as well um that the jedi order really has lost its way um and that you can understand uh, why there would be a need for um, there to be some reassessment of what a Jedi is. And I think this really does end up, and I've, I've mentioned this plenty of times before, how it, it, it all, you know, people wonder, like, does, is Luke Skywalker turning his back on the, on the Jedi way, um, both in, you know, like the Empire Strikes Back and in the newer movies as well, like in The Last Jedi. And I, I really think that he, what we don't understand or what the people in the galaxy don't understand, but what Luke did understand is that the Jedi lost their way. Um, and that, you know, the Jedi order and the Jedi way is far from perfect. Um, and it certainly doesn't lead to, um, sort of righteous uh, protectors of the galaxy. It can lead to sort of being a, a corrupt puppet of a, I don't know, I guess, I guess the, they are being manipulated by the dark side at the end of the day. Yeah. But it's just so hard to watch because you know, Ahsoka has been someone who is so, she's completely given her life to this organization. That's, that's all she knows. That's everything about her identity is that, you know, coming in and ripping that, uh, little kind of string of beads which has been uh kind of i guess her version of the little uh padawan rat tail uh which was cool because that was like bane stole that back in like children of the force and she took it back from him kind of thing but yeah yeah it's it's rough yeah i feel like anakin just speaks on my behalf when he like just openly yells at the council and i said this meeting is just a formality and you find out the entire this entire thing is just I mean, just so it can be done by the books. And that even Yoda himself is saying, yeah, we've already come to a conclusion. Hmm. Like, oh, it's rough. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because uh, Ahsoka really does have faith that things will go correctly if the truth can just come out. Um, but obviously this whole arc is to reveal that, I mean, essentially she comes to the, she ends up being in the same place as Barris Offie. It's just, she's not willing to go to extreme terrorist ends to make her point. Um, but, and she's very dejected by all of this at the end of the day. 
Um, you know, I, and you know, I mean, I would be too, if everything I've ever known turned his back on me, um, and you know, left me for a, an average citizen after they had, uh, you know, made me a Padawan and everything like that. And I had served under them for years in, in battle. And then they're just quickly as a political tool, turn your back, turn their back on me. Mm-hmm. And all of that, Anakin is basically the only one standing by her. He's going out and investigating. Mm-hmm, right. And he hunts down Ventress, and like he's he's pretty much completely gone to the dark side by this time. He's like force choking <laughs> her against the wall, and man, I love how yeah. the he looks so terrifying with the animation. And then when he goes and, and tracks down Barris, and he, he attacks her with her own lightsaber to find out the truth, and this leads to a really cool battle going through the temple grounds. And uh, I think this is the first time we see the Jedi Guardians. Um, yeah. Which are just amazing. The, the design, these kind of double-bladed light, white lightsabers. I love how they kind of, when, they're, when, they, when they see them fighting, they kind of hold their lightsabers out. This like, kind of like a challenge of cease hostilities, which I'm sure they probably had to say <laughs> a lot of times. I'm sure like this isn't the first time two Padawans have like gone to come to blows with each other in the history of the Order. But uh, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so the, the fight goes out. We see a... Uh, uh, Master Sanub teaching the kids uh, from the, the Gathering episode earlier, which is really cool to see them again. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so it's just a, a really fun fight. And man, oh, again, your Anakin is so freaking terrifying <laughs> when he finally overpowers <laughs> and just throws her against the tree. Just the, the one thing can get in just his facial animation and just the way his body moves in the fight and <laughs> just how scared Barris is toward the end. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's going for the kill. Yeah. Well, yeah, she she's using the dark side to try and overpower him and eventually I I think maybe there might be a, a slight bit of recognition that uh-oh, this guy's powerful and he's doing the same thing as me a little bit. Yeah. Almost feels like it's mimicking the moment from Return of the Jedi when he kind of has her down and he's just bringing his lightsaber down mm-hmm. like heavy blow after heavy blow yeah. on her. Um but before that the the scene where he tracks down Ventress um it's just a moment that like, especially this most recent time just gave me goosebumps whenever, you know, Anakin, who's always kind of done things differently than the order, you know, kind of would have done when he's confronted with the fact that, yeah, this order is, is pretty messed up. Uh, Cause she says, you know, it turns out um, the Jedi aren't as righteous um, as, as you all thought you and your press, uh, you and your precious Jedi order. And then it, it just zooms in on his face and his eyes just get huge because he realizes she really is telling the truth. And right then we just, we cut into a transition moving in like uh, this establishing shot that's moving into uh, the court hearing for Ahsoka. And so it's, you know, Anakin's realizing it, the, the visual language is acknowledging it, that, that this is, this entire thing is corrupt at this point. And, uh, and Ahsoka is going into this trial with, with no real, fair chance of, of getting the truth out. Yeah, yeah, guilty or not, Tarkin's gonna have her executed simply to make a point in for his political ends. And you know, after after she you know she's proven innocent and, and acquitted, um the council just uh, they, they like they don't even they barely even admit to doing anything wrong. It's like, oh well this was just part of your trials. You you can come on back now and just oh gosh, just a bunch of jerks. <laughs> the arrogance in that scene just Oh, it's so frustrating, especially, you know, when when Mace Windu has the audacity to say, like, 
this was your great trial because after all, you're a greater Jedi now for having gone through it. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah I would walk away too. This ending, um, this last episode directed by Dave Filoni is so good. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so sad, but just the way she, when she, she like the when out Anakin's offering back her her uh, her beads and you know, the expected look on her face his face and the kind of the look she gives him is so much really powerful visual storytelling and then the, when the, the final conversation it was just framed against the sunset and Ahsoka's just like the everything she once believed in you know her, she put her entire trust and life into this order and to have it you know so callously abandon her in the moment she needed it most i mean you like how could you go back to that that level of trust you know that level of trust and uh devotion you would need to be a jedi like how, how could mm-hmm. you go back to that after it's been revealed you know just to that that brotherhood is is just a facade hmm. that's and yeah like it's it's so heartbreaking seeing her you know leave the leave this leave the order and leave the show but you definitely understand why she she chose to do this. And that dang pe- or that dang violin starts oh, playing. And I I get watery eyed. Yeah, I remember the, when I first time going through the show, when we got when I got to this, I was just like, "What is life anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore. Ahsoka's gone." <laughs> uh, you have that great moment in their conversation, um, where Anakin's really trying to have her understand that she's not alone and he understands what she's going through and he's like i i know what it's like to want to walk away from the order and she says i know and it seems like it takes him off guard the way i took that and i want to see if you guys agree to me it felt like she was saying i know about you and padme and this desire to leave for that or she just knows he's crazy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think she less emotionally powerful I think she sees that he is conflicted, that he, she feels because of their connection that he's conflicted. And she probably, at least that's the assumption that I got, that she knows about their relationship um, and what he's tied down to. Just like um, earlier, he had kind of heavily implied that he was aware of how she felt about Lux Bonteri. Um and this very much is kind of like the, they're just a mutual understanding between the two of them um, because of, you know, they're going through battle together and being Padawan and, um, uh, you know, her master and all of these things. And, uh, you know, it's just it's this emotional moment where, uh, you know, did, she's willing to walk away from everything. But he st- he f- still very much feels shackled to the Jedi Order. Um that he could he could leave if he really wanted to um but there's something that's keeping him there that he may not even fully understand um of course obviously in all of this i feel like you always have to caveat everything and you know palpatine's uh you know manipulating everything mm-hmm. so um there there's some there's things that are keeping him there that sort of tie him down whether you know not just his relationship with um uh, Padme, which kind of keeps him attached to the the fortunes of the Republic, um, but also you know his relationship with Obi Wan and obviously his growing relationship with Palpatine, which he doesn't really fully understand as him being manipulated and all these other things like that. Whereas um, that's all been severed from her, and she can walk away. 
Um, yeah. but he's not allowed to follow with her. Um, even though maybe he would, he would like to, because it would be following his heart. Mm-hmm. And just, I love that, that final conversation, like you see how much Ahsoka has grown. I, I love that by now, uh, Ashley Eckstein, she's not doing any more of that childish voice that Mm-mm. Ahsoka has had throughout the series. I mean, she's a, a full, she's a fully grown adult now. And she's just, you know, she's, you see, she's you know completely come into her own as a person and then that final shot is she's walking down the stairs and there's no fanfare over the credits. Like the entire show has had this like really bombastic fanfare and this just ends on silence. You know, they're really hammering and ha- what what a huge uh, moment this is. And one really cool thing I found is that uh, this is this is the only arc in the entire series that has a full orchestra orchestra or, no, that has a full orchestral score. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Kiner actually went and with his own money hired an orchestra to um. Huh. To give this awesome. this this arc the the powerful music it deserved, yeah. Which I yeah I was noticing throughout just how great the music was, and to see that in the special features was really cool. Yeah, kind of is kind of is amazing. Uh, that shot of her walking out, you know, and it plays the just a very somber version of the Force theme. You know, it it sounds like we're hearing you know a track from one of the films. It just it carries a sense of weight with it. Mm-hmm. And. To- my pet theory is that this entire thing was complete was orchestrated like from the bombing to the you know to this was orchestrated by Palpatine specifically to remove Ahsoka, but also obviously to discredit the order. But you know to to, to remove Ahsoka from Anakin's life and while reveal while uh, turning Anakin against the Jedi Order by having them betray Ahsoka, like that, you know obviously I don't think it's confirmed, but it would have been so cool if he planned all this you know, to have Ahsoka framed. To have her, you know, either executed or, or leave, so that that balancing agent that has been there for the last, you know, two years would be removed. And honestly, you know, thinking about it, if Ahsoka had still been his apprentice, I, I don't think he would have gone to the dark side. Even you know, no matter how he feels about the Jedi Order, he's always, you know, had a very close relationship with Ahsoka, and you know, having that kind of that balancing agent in his life. Had to have been a huge thorn in the side for Palpatine as he's trying to you know groom him. Yeah, I think she would have been a a voice of I don't want to say like reason, but it would have been maybe like a a calming, centering influence for him in the midst of everything that was happening. But yeah, I mean, I I honestly believe that like all of these are manipulations of Palpatine to remove the things and obstacles in Anakin's way um, to becoming his next apprentice and uh you know it starts it starts way before this but this is like a major piece that palpatine manages to get out of the way um mm-hmm. you know obviously one of the other major ones being padme which is a little bit more delicate than this but maybe maybe not quite as intricate <laughs> um this seems like a very intricate plot um but it, it seems like it very much smacks of like dark side manipulation. I mean, it, it, it's it's not beyond him. <laughs> Look what he's been doing for the last you know, decade. Right, no kidding. Uh, but yeah, if obviously you know we have they they plan to go on for three more seasons. But if this had been the series finale, I think it, it would have been. Uh, it's a pretty great place to leave them, and you you see all all the pieces are are lined up for Revenge of the Sith. You know. Going out of this, you're like, yeah, I, I would turn on the Jedi Order too. I don't care if, like, I don't care. I, I would go to the dark side probably as well. Yeah, I mean, it is a good way visually, at least 
to end it too, because she was walking down the steps of the temple away, you know? Yeah. And I mean, what's his turning point is when he's walking up the stairs of the temple with the clone army behind him. Um, you know, very much the, this very, uh, poetic moment, uh, where a major influence in his life is walking away. And later on in revenge of the Sith, you know, his moment is walking into the temple to destroy Mm it. (laughs) Yeah. Like people talk about the last Jedi, like how could, uh, how could Luke be so dismissive of of the Jedi? Like, but Lucas has been, you know, setting up these seeds. Yeah. Way before Disney took over. If you, if you think the last Jedi is saying something new there, you really haven't been paying attention. No. And maybe, maybe that is the point is that probably not enough people have seen this. Um, and been able to gain some more context for the prequels because it's very it, it very much is is obvious what he's doing here in the Clone Wars, um, in setting up uh, the very much the idea that the Jedi Order is is as much to blame for the rise of the Empire as the Emperor himself. All right, I think that's a great place to close out this season. Uh, real quick before we uh, close out, uh, what? What are your uh, let's go with you, Josh? First, what are your fi- uh, top five favorite episodes from this this uh, season and your favorite arc? Well, um, my favorite episodes kind of run the gamut of all the different arcs. So, mm-hmm. uh, like number five, I really enjoy missing in action. You know, kind of the concluding the the I guess it, it's actually the penultimate episode in the um, the arc with uh, with uh, Ga- Colonel Gascon and the um, the D Squad. <laughs> Um, but I like that episode where it, it works in Gregor, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the missing clone trooper who, you know, kind of grows closer in your heart when you realize he's kind of like the, the screw loose clone in Rebels, um, <laughs> who's just a little bit, you know, crazy. And uh, my fourth one is The Gathering. I, I really like that first episode of, you know, the the young Jedi um you know, like these, these Jedi who are going to get their lightsaber crystals. Um, I like how it's a lot of cool lore there. Yes. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff. Um, that's worked back into the Ahsoka novel as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of the planet is. I'm not looking it up right Uh, now. Uh, yeah. So Ilum works its way back into the Ahsoka novel, um, but again, I just, I love the, the lore based episode like that really kind of getting into the, the, um, the interesting aspects of the connection of kyber crystals and the connection of a kyber crystal to a particular Jedi and things like that. Um, and then, you know, basically my favorite episodes from all three arcs that we've talked about. So tipping points, um, a great episode that really helps you establish a character that we all come to love after Rogue One. Uh, or maybe that we shouldn't love because he's crazy and actually quite dangerous and a terrible guy. Um, and then number two is the wrong Jedi, which we just got finished talking about, um, which is Only tough because I would say, yeah, that's my number two because my favorite one is the lawless. Um, I feel like visually this is my favorite episode in the season. Um, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is my favorite Clone Wars character. Um, and it also premiered on my birthday. So there you go. <laughs> uh, and I'm assuming your favorite arc is the, uh, the final one or, uh, yeah, it's the wrong Jedi arc. Yeah. I think, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's, uh, all mm-hmm. of ours. <laughs> yep. 
because it's amazing uh and uh your uh, top five episodes uh james um so for me i think number five would be um either missing in action or a sunny day in the void i know a sunny day in the void is completely ridiculous and it probably lasts way longer than it has any right to do especially considering (laughs) uh other episodes in this but i don't know there's something there's there's a level of charm to it that like in my head, I know I should be mad that I'm being forced to watch this episode as a completionist, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm... Well, I was mad for you. Nice. Okay, see, there, I thank you for that because I actually can end up actually really enjoying it. Um, number four would probably be The Soft War, uh, which is my favorite from um, the Onderon arc. I just like that that's when we really get into the ideas of how far do you go in an uprising while at the same time not being the bad guy. Um, I just like a lot of like the, you know, hiding in the shadows, the different guerrilla tactics. I just, it was a really cool episode and the, the dynamic between Saw and Stila, I thought it was really well done. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of the arc overall, but I think that's my favorite. Um, for number three uh, would be The Gathering. Uh, it's just a, it's definitely my favorite of, of that arc. And like y'all said, it does a lot of really cool things with the the kyber crystals and everything. And it's it's crazy that you're able to have an episode like this that stars primarily just like little kids going around looking for crystals. But it's it's really entertaining, and I think the the characters are really endearing. And over the course of that whole arc, I actually really like them a lot. Um, but of those, there is something just fun about like the adventure of searching through the cave and looking for this and establishing all the different. And I mean, just little Wookiees and little Aloy, like they're just <laughs> adorable. Um, and then, so this is where it gets really hard for me, um, because I kind of just want to put them back to back and just like in in any sort of order, because I want to put um, revival, the lawless. Um, the wrong Jedi and the Jedi who knew too much. Like, just do it. <laughs> all of them. Okay, yeah. All of those are those four are kind of revolving around the top two spots. Because with um with a Darth Maul one, um, I love, I love his return. Like when we first get back with him in the series or uh, in this season, um, the fight between he and Obi Wan is is amazing and. Um, you know, as as we kind of establish where he and um and Savage are at that point, just like these mostly aimless kind of monsters, this is a really really cool episode. And seeing them cross paths with someone as lovable as Hondo is really fun. Um, and then the uh, the lawless for the same reason as a as you, Josh, where it's just visually it's one of the most gorgeously shot and animated of the entire series the moment of satine's death and i didn't really talk about it a lot but when it, just the entire like the facial animation and the body language of obi-wan after it happens he just looks so broken it's emotionally devastating for me who obi-wan might actually be my favorite character across the entire like all all of star wars so to just see him on his knees so broken is is really emotionally powerful to me um and then for the last arc between with ahsoka uh i think that that chase scene in the jedi who knew too much 
is one of the, if not the most well-directed and like visually exciting sequences of the entire series. Um, just the, the lightning and the rain, uh, having all like what's essentially just, you know, a, a star Wars version of the fugitive is just really, really cool. Um, and then the, the wrong Jedi, just that last scene is, is without a doubt the most emotionally powerful moment of the entire series to me. And it, especially the first time through just caused me to realize how much I'd become invested in this character where I was like, like you gave, I was like, wait, what am I even supposed to do now? (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's, this one was a really tough one. So yeah, I, I actually hadn't written mine down, so I've been typing up my uh, uh, loose top five while I've been talking. So I don't actually stand by most of these. I don't. I'd have to think about it more. But what I have here is a uh, revival in the lawless. Uh, definitely there, uh, basically for the same reasons y'all said. Obviously, the wrong Jedi. It's just tragic perfection. For the other two, uh, I would do a war on two fronts. Um, I just, I get, you know, I like all the political complications it brings in. Um, and the final one would be a necessary bond uh, because it's Hondo and we're getting him teaming up more with our Jedi and that's just the best. <laughs> All right. So uh, that was Yeah, fun. we did it. Thanks for coming on, Josh. That was, this is uh, <laughs> longer than I expected, but man, it's hard to go out short with this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, it's all right. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So it's okay. We made it. We can put on our little silver blankets. We made it through the finish line, and oh, we've now got, we can we've go got rest five, easy. Four and a half seasons left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right. So yeah, uh, you want to plug your show real quick before we head out again, Josh? Yeah. Once again, if you've forgotten after however much time has passed, um, I am on Home One Radio with my friend Blaine. I almost forgot his name because it's been so long. Um, but yes, we are at home1radio.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can listen to us there. Uh, if you're looking for me on the Twitterverse, uh, obviously the show is Home One Radio on Twitter. And uh, I'm Hey, It's That Josh. And yeah, we have a show every single week, uh, sometimes more than once when a movie comes out. Um, yeah. So anyways, you can find us there. We'll have some stuff coming up where we are talking about the new Thrawn book, which is basically like a movie coming out for us. So, um, we will have a lot to say about that book when it comes out at the end of July. All right. So again, I'd like to ask you guys to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there is Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, where there is Franchised Pod. And if you want to hear other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, primarily outside of here, it'd be um, Letterboxd. Uh, my account is JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, it's where I try to keep most of my reviews and uh, post them there. I haven't really had a whole... I think Hereditary was the first time in quite a while that I actually took the time to write something up with school being really hectic. But uh, but I do keep up, you know, like log different movies um, and try to write some sort of short excerpt of my thoughts there. We've also... Um, I know I've mentioned it before, especially back on Underrated. We kind of went through a, a hiatus, but... Uh, over at Article Asylum, we've got things back up and running. Um, so we've got all of our older catalogs still there, uh, and we're slowly going to start getting out some new stuff as well. Uh, so you can find all of that there uh, at articleasylum.wordpress.com. Uh, and I am also on Letterboxd as uh, Gabriel Green, and I am occasionally on Twitter as Gabe A. Green. 
And uh, for next week, we will be coming back with the uh, the produced half of season six known as The Lost Missions. And we'll finally have some behind the scenes stuff to talk about, which is awesome. It's been a while. I know. It's, you know, it's kind of enjoyable to just get right into the, the review. But it, it'll be nice to, to talk about some of the more um, the production behind all of the stuff that we love. So until next week, we will see you in the next season. Oh my, look at the time. Well, my work here is done. 